Louder! Thrill me. Black as midnight on a moonless night. Bitches leave. Groovy. Fucking hold up, hold up. Well then, there, motherfucker! It's got a death curse. Let's fuck! I'll fuck anything that moves! <laughs> Let's show this prehistoric bitch how we do things downtown. Forever deep, bitch! <laughs> Recording live from the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcasting, mouthpiece of the Southeast, uncontested superstar of the airwaves, and your reigning and defending podcast champion of the world, Brainerd A. Lane bringing you another edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. Now, during the month of May, it's customary to spotlight dear old mom with her very own holiday. Well, tonight, we're going to do just that, and we're going to celebrate Mother's Day with an in-depth retrospective of a slasher sequel that probably would have been better suited as aborted, that being 1989's Nightmare on Elm Street 5, the Dream Child. Now, don't worry, this episode is not all doom and gloom, because we were lucky enough to have a couple of special guests stop by the Black Lodge, so later on we'll be hearing from the star of The Dream Child, the lovely and incredibly talented Lisa Wilcox, about the evolution of her character Alice from Part 4 to Part 5. Then we're going to be hearing from our good old buddy Mixtron about his work on the teaser trailer and why he left the production shortly after its completion. Lots of great stuff coming up, but first, here's some messages from our sponsors. Hey wrestling fans, this is Eddie Shepard, one half of the guys over at Wrestling Recommendations, telling you to check out our podcast. Each week, myself and my best friend Travis Lasseter dive in with a deep retrospective and watch along to some of our favorite matches. We have curated a list of over 200 plus matches spanning over 40 plus years. We take all those matches, we throw them into a randomizer, and the very next week, that's the match we cover. Check us out at Wrestling Recom on Twitter, R E C O M M, and Wrestling Recommendations on Facebook. And you can find us wherever podcasts are available. And let us bring our wrestling recommendations to you. For you, it's the Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast, hosted by me, Metal Thrashing Mike. And every episode, I'll be bringing you fans from the world of underground heavy metal, just waiting for you to hear them. So go check us out on all major streaming services as the Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast. Come on down to Mass by Lance, premium Friday the 13th custom-made hockey mask down there in Tennessee by Lance McKinney. Find him on Facebook and Instagram over at Mass by Lance. Go order one now, boy. Yee-hoo! Hey, assholes, it's me, Boner the Skeleton, mascot of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast, here to sell you some shit you probably can't afford. Are you low on cash? That's not a problem. Sell your blood. Sell your children. Go to the jack-off clinic and give them a sperm sample. We don't care how you get the money as long as you give it to us. Would you like a t-shirt? 
a mug or a sticker to show that you're a true friend and a member of the Rant Army? Well, all you gotta do is go to rantarmy.com. And if you don't buy something, then fuck you. Dive into the new action-packed thriller, Mr. Black. This is a story about a mafia hitman, Mr. Black, whose latest target is nothing like he's had to deal with before. Mr. Valentino is a man that's into the dark arts, who calls on the Grim Reaper to kill Black. However, the spell fails to be fully successful, as he is still murdered. Now, Death himself is pursuing Mr. Black relentlessly. Now who can Black turn to for help? Who can stop a curse like this? Get Mr. Black on Amazon Books or as a digital download on Kindle. M is for the million things she gave me. O means that only she's growing old. T is for the tears she shed to save me. H is for the heart of purest gold. E is for her eyes with love light shining. R means right, and right shall always be. Put them all together, they spell mother. But more like motherfucker. I'm your host, Brandon A. Lane, and tonight we're celebrating Mother's Day with perhaps the worst cinematic son of all time, Freddy Krueger. But unlike previous years where we've enjoyed delicious treats in the form of well-loved entries of the film series, unfortunately this year the flowers have died, the balloons have all been popped, and all hope for a nice family meal with mom is going to be instead replaced with the cinematic equivalent of jailhouse sodomy. <laughs> Tonight, we bring you an in-depth retrospective for 1989's A Nightmare on Street 5, The Dream Child. Joining me tonight to share in the sexual assault of our film-going senses is my best friend, sometimes drunk, always fat, the boozerweight champion of podcasting, you know him, you love him, Fat Tony! Buckle the fuck in, motherfuckers. This is going to be an eight-and-a-half-hour podcast. I watched this this morning at like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, because that's usually when I get up for work, and I'm like, I don't have work, I'm going to chill out. I haven't watched this since the last time, the last time I watched this movie is when you came over when Sarah and the girls were in California like four or five years ago. You came to my house, we drank, we watched, we talked some shit. I've got some fresh fucking hot takes on this shit. Well, let's just hit the ground running. Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, was released August 11th, 1989. Two-part question. When did you first see this movie, and how old were you in 1989? In 1989, I was eight, which, um, you know, I, I didn't see it then. It was probably 10 or 11. The first time I saw it, probably 10 because I didn't masturbate, and we'll get into later why it, the next year, I'm definitely masturbating. But yeah, probably around 10 or 11 on Cinemax. In 89, I would have been around five. And I got to tell you, like 89, that was like the, the first year of like film going for me, like in the theater, like big time, like seeing every major A lot movie. of good shit in 89. Yeah, we'll talk about that a little later on. But the first time I saw this movie, it would have had to have been probably 91 or 92. Uh, definitely after the fact of it being released on VHS. It was one of those movies like... Uh, my grandmother would let me rent, but my parents wouldn't know that I had seen it kind of thing. Good old racist evil grandma. Exactly. <laughs> she was good for some things. Yeah. Uh, um, Nightmare 5 be released in August, rather than like the prime of the Halloween season, is kind of strange. Um, do you think the decision to release it in summer was based off of how well that Part 4 did at the box office? Look, Bob Shea's a lot of things, but the man knew how to get money. The last one was their biggest hit. You have a narrow, a narrower window in like the Halloween releases and all that shit. So 
Yeah, no, it, it was a smart move to get more money because the summer blockbuster season, and especially if he had on the tail end because there were some fucking blockbusters that year. After those, you know, let's sop up the sloppy seconds riding into spooky season because August is September, October. It's only separated from October by month. It's actually, now that I think about it, a really canny business decision. Um, So, overall, just to, let's talk about film in general. Do you think when in the year specifically a horror film would be released can negatively or positively affect its box office return? For modern times, you have January which is low expectation month, which used to be the dumping ground for bullshit, but there's been a lot of good shit. January, February. Horror-wise in January and February, and spooky season. Back in the day, you really only had spooky season if it was an actually good scary movie, if it was like this, uh, just wanting to get as wide an audience as possible. You know, I understand why they did the tail end. But yes, when you release a movie, definitely has a lot. Okay, well, specific to Nightmare 5, do you think that releasing it in the summer helped or hurt its box office? I think it helped because this was back in the day when it took like a movie like a year to get on VHS. So this probably hit theaters like probably two or three months after Nightmare 4 hit the or you know video rental stores and got people thinking about it again and uh, so it's honestly probably the prime they probably actually planned this very specifically to hit right after four hit VHS. Well, let's talk about the budget. It was produced on an estimated six million dollars. Now in nineteen eighty nine money that's that's a pretty hefty sum for a low budget horror. Hey, movie. Robert Shea knows when to spend money, as he did with like uh Lord of the Rings. He's like, Well, they're three books, so let's like make three movies. These are big like these are Fangoria movies. They put the money every as much as I really hate what this movie is and because it could have been so much better. Every dime is on screen. Let's be honest. But, you know, so, you know, but it, by also having that high a budget, they got all these effects articles in Fangoria, which is free publicity. And it was like, oh, shit, we need to see that because they're doing this and that. So, I mean, it's money well spent. Well, it's opening weekend. It made $8,115,176. So it made back its budget plus, you know, a couple million dollars. Yeah. You take into advertising budget. So it's probably broke even by its first weekend. Worldwide gross, $22,168,359. Now, in 2023 money, like everything that's worth its weight in salt, generally will kind of get close to or break that $100 million movie barrier. But everything is so much more global now as well. Um, When you say international box office, this probably played in France, England, and Germany. You know, three other small countries, you know, smaller than fucking Texas. Oh, yeah, 99% of the money is always going to come America. domestically. Yeah. But, you know, it'll show in a couple other places. And you got to think, like, especially with England, I mean, like, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was banned in there until, like, the 2000s. Bunch of tea-drinking bitches. <laughs> exactly. But tooth <laughs> fuck your queen she's dead <laughs> with a li- dead actually, lizard person we're, we're actually charting in great britain right now so we probably shouldn't speak ill of their queen jesus christ what the fuck we was just that? had a fire trucker ambulance go by because of our hot takes on england <laughs> wow it's drive time in the morning with mikey and hot fart <laughs> 
That voice I just stuck. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Well, what do you think the IMDb rating of Nightmare Street Not Nightmare Street Five is? If it's above like thirty eight, it's too high. Uh, of, uh, out of 10. Oh, out of 10, if it's above 3, it's too high. 5.0. Fuck you. It's not a middle of the road. Like, like I, lots of people say, oh, if it's boring, I'd hate it more. No, this movie's not boring, and I hate it more. No, this movie does not deserve to get right in the middle. Well, Rotten Tomatoes has it at a rotten 30% on, there the, you go. on the... Uh, Tomato meter? Critic, critic score. What do you think the audience score is at? It's probably something stupid like 40% because they're always higher. And 31. Good job. But it's still 31% of the people that like this. Go go fuck yourself. So that, no, it's, like, it's like there was one <laughs> Percentage wise, that's right where it needs to be. 1% more audience enjoyed it than the critics, uh, which is usually... Fat that, fuck Scott. Yeah, I will, I will <laughs> lay a testament to Scott. Scott does not like this movie, so he's right. It's like a broken clock. He's right twice a day. Well, he sent me a picture of him listening to a Touch of Evil on satellite radio or something the other day, so fuck him. <laughs> All right. Metacritic, which we often hail as being the worst aggregate for, you know, as, as far being as far away from what we feel about a movie. Speaking of broken clocks, they can be right here if they shit on this and go like 30, 40% or something, you know, reasonable. They can be right. Well, they're wrong at 54%. Of course. They saw a chance to be wrong and took it. Hey, there's a problem-shaped hole, a wrong-shaped hole. Let's fit right into that. All right. Well, the one that we trust generally the most, Google users... They're going to go too high. I'm scared. What do you think? Like, probably something stupid, like 79%. It's something. exactly 79%. Jeez. Okay, I love you, Google users. I am you. I want to love things. I'm not Brandon. Brandon is a hater. I am a hater. He, he, he naturally, that's his, you have to, if Brandon, that's why if Brandon tells me a movie's good, and especially like, he told me about the uh, Slumber Party Massacre remake that's now on like, what, Shudder? It's on Sh- or Screenbox. Shudder or, or Screenbox, one or the other. It's one of those. He's like, this movie's way better than it has any right to be. I'm like, I know it's going to be a good movie because Brandon naturally hates. Oh no, I am a hater. I'm the hater from the Dave Chappelle skit. Where, hey, they hey, have, hey. where they have a picture of Rosie O'Donnell and they say, she looks like a person that wears underwear with dick holes in it. <laughs> I am yes, that person. He is that. It took my 40th birthday and like an amount of alcohol that probably came close to killing him to get him to watch the great 2013 Evil Dead. It's still, it's still not as It's drunk. a vague, blurry memory in his mind I that don't, he's seen. I it. don't remember it, but it's still not... As drunk as we got watching Human said No, nothing is like I had. A, you go back in the archives or the the feed. That's a walking blackout because I'm driving home. Like, oh man, we didn't do this. That should have been great. And I listened to it, and we totally had done that. You can also find that on our YouTube channel. Uh, oh yeah, the actual movie. For whatever reason, they have not copied. No, but Tom it. Six is not defending that guy. He wants people. You know, it's funny because when we promoted it, he actually retweeted yes, it. Yes, so he so. really doesn't give a fuck. So thank you, Tom. We've Six. been officially endorsed by Tom Six. <laughs> Uh, if you ever re-release the episode, use our commentary track on the disc. Oh, God. Free of charge. Free of charge. Absolutely. Uh, just give us a thumbs up. Yeah. And, a, and a, maybe like a, Hi guys. A, a shout out on social media. The one that, uh, of the aggregates that we hold most dear to our hearts is the Rant Army Review, where we give our listening audience a chance to voice off 
of what they feel about our movie in our Facebook group. You have two options. Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, good. Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, bad. What do you think the our users... I think the they're going to skew high because, you know, you have people that know us. Oh, they're doing 5. They must love 5 who don't know us enough to know. No, fuck 5. So I'm going to say like 80-ish. 68%. Good job. Good job, fellas. And the people, 68 I don't mind y'all. I don't mind Google use 79%. I've watched this movie more than 30 times. I don't hate, hate it. There are things I love. And then there's times where like, I'm going to sit down and watch all of the canon original new line movies. And I have to watch part five because my brain's broken and I can't just skip it. So, I mean, no, good job. To something that is more more negative, uh, in Stank Dick Eddie's Titty Tally, we only have one set of bare breasts in the movie, and unfortunately, it is from a body double. We don't get to see Alice Nagin. All right, this is, I was telling Brandon when I was up late last, or early this morning watching this, I took, like, copious notes in my little notes app on my phone. The second note I took was body double equals sad. I jacked off to this a lot as a kid because Lisa Wilcox did it for me. And this is when I learned that sexuality is a spectrum because the opening credit fuck scene is just mounds of flesh. There are a few times you can distinguish what body you're looking at, but mostly it's just like it's humping people. Jack off. (laughs) And usually the jack part would take place between her entering the shower, getting trapped naked in like the watered down split pea soup. And Which is coming out, sexy. It's so sexy. It's a, a fetish I've never been able to live because my wife's not adventurous enough. <laughs> but uh, like I should, I should have realized that ass is not Lisa Wilcox. Like their skin tone is like two tones darker. Anyway, moving on to from a childhood tragedy. Uh, you know, for every positive you can say about movie magic, this is not one of them. The first <clears> time that I ever realized uh, that when you saw a pair of tits that was not correlated with the movie was all the right moves. Uh, that Tom Cruise movie, yep. because I thought Leah Thompson was naked in that movie, and I have fucking thing for Leah Thompson. No, body double. Yep. So... You you betrayed my boner, Leah Thompson, and you betrayed my boner, uh, Lisa, Lisa Wilcox. Wilcox. How dare hey, she you? She helps her boner later on. We'll get to that. Oh well, I mean, I could I could jack off to Lisa Wilcox today, fully clothed. She is a very I, I attractive. Drive woman. to her house and do that. So on Fat Tony's hit list, what do we got? We got three. And and I'm sorry, I'm I'm, I'm going to interrupt Brandon here. Not my home street. Not a body count. It's quality, not quantity. Three's too low. You gotta have four's my minimum. Well, if you count Freddy, technically we have four, but I but, don't. But I'm going to agree with you uh, for once in terms of uh, of body count that this is uh, too low. If she would have gotten abortion, I'd have added four. <laughs> we'll talk about that a little later. <laughs> All right, 1989 was the year of the blockbuster. You had Tim Burton's Batman, Ghostbusters 2, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, amongst many others just battling out for mainstream supremacy. But even though horror has started to wane at the box office, there were still several spooky movies of note that were released that year. So let's travel back to the end of the 80s and check out our stiff competition for 1989. So, Fat Tony, if you'd be so kind. Quick fun fact while he's handing me this list. Do you know the last major theatrical movie of the 80s? Tango and Cash. Oh, goddamn right. Tango and Cash was the last movie. Okay. 
Here we go. Stiff competition. I'm kind of excited. Nightmare on Elm Street 5. 976 Eagle. Evil. Eagle. Uh, 976 Evil, uh, directed by Robert England. Boy, Robert England. After Midnight. I remember the case for this. I don't remember the movie. It's kind of a anthology film with a, a story that kind of wraps around. So I'm probably not missing anything. Amityville 4, The Evil Escapes. TV movie. Patty Duke, it sucks. <laughs> Beware, children at play. It's about like pre-stocking playgrounds. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> Chopper Chicks and Zombie Town was a movie I found way after the fact. And I still just, I always love it. One of uh, Billy Bob Thornton's first movies. Yep. Chud too, Bud the Chud again. And like I watched this as an adult, it's a bad, bad, not good movie. I saw it originally as like a kid, maybe on USA Up All Night, possibly. But you know, Robert England is in that. Yes, movie he as well. is, and I loved it. Clown House, directed by Victor Salva, a oh, pedophile. So fuck him. Gross. Curse to the bite. Doesn't they have Will Wheaton? It does. Okay, that's the only thing I remember. Shut up, Wesley. <laughs> Shut up. Cutting class with a boy, Brad Pitt. And Jill Shellen. And Jill Shellen. Elves. Again, I know I've With seen With Dan it. Haggerty. I, I remember the case more than the movie, but I have seen the movie. Dan, Dan Haggerty was, uh, oh, fuck. What character was he? Grizzly, Grizzly Adams? Grizzly Adams, yes. Yeah. The Fly 2. Fuck you, Eric Schultz. Not for any reason in particular. Daphne I mean, Zaniga Daphne is hot Zaniga. as fuck. And that movie is much better than you're giving it credit See, for. I haven't seen it in 25 years. You need, I, to, you need to watch it. Because it is... I, I got the box set from Screen Factory. It is, yeah, I think it's actually a decent movie. I'm not joking. If Brandon says it, then it must be true about a movie. But you know, he also says that about like those like Colombian cartel movies where they're cutting people's heads off, like those videos. Listen, so. I can only get a wreck <laughs> from certain things. And all right, Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight: Jason Takes Manhattan, which I also snuck in and saw at the Capri. I, I also saw it in the theater. <coughs> Uh, my grandmother took me to it. Um, Bless you, racist grand. It was one of the few times in a movie theater where I'm like, wow, this movie is not scary. It's not at all. Um, I think I've asked you this before. She's still alive? She is. Uh, I haven't talked Kate to her. keeps you young at I heart. I haven't spoken to her in, nor, God, probably since like 2006, but she's got to be like getting close to 100. Nor should you speak to her, but you know, you know hate, childhood memories. Hate skeeting her alive. <laughs> Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, a movie I will say as bad as this movie, but had all the same potentials to be a possibly decent movie that this movie had. Uh, the Horror Show, a.k.a. House 3. A.k.a. Shocker, because they're the yeah. same movie. <laughs> well, reading this, I realize now I've seen House 3. I never saw it. I saw The Horror Show, and then I remember at um one of the video stores near the... East End Angles uh, showbiz video. Oh, dude, I love they that video They had House store. 4, and I'm like, where the fuck is House 3? House 4. And now I realize it's... House 4 brings back William Cat. Yes. Um, it's also a terrible movie. It's a terrible, horrible movie, but I rented it day one. I have them all on Blu-ray. They're terrible. <laughs> and they're terrible. The first two are good. The first two are good. The second one's good if you saw it as a kid. If you saw it seen as an adult, it is not good. How dare you? I love that movie. I, I saw it as a very... It's, it, if you have kids, start this. Start them out on that movie as a horror movie. I love House 2. Anyway, we're, we're, I'm losing the thread here. I, Mad Man. Great movie. I'm sorry. Wrote by David Chaskin, who yeah. also did uh, Nightmare on the Street Part 2 and uh, scarred the life of uh, the Jesse actor uh, forevermore. <laughs> 
Uh, parents, uh, whatever you say about Randy Quaid now with his the Hollywood killers, crazy <laughs> running around shit. This movie fucked me up as a kid, and it also had this great like video store advertising thing that was like a cardboard cutout, and it lit up when you opened the fridge. That's one of that's what I mainly remember. This that was movie released for. by Vestron. Yeah, that's I actually don't own that on Blu-ray. I need to I need to. God, get out! I know, You're kicked right? off your own podcast. Pet Cemetery. Classic. So I, I think it was Matt Underwood that had on his voicemail for years the scream of the dad after his kid gets killed. <laughs> oh my god! If you called him to voicemail, that's what you are. Nobody's gonna get that reference without. Nobody him. will. But we knew somebody that had the screams of a father watching his son get hit by a semi as their voicemail message. Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge, a movie I'm glad like Joe Bob kind of brought back. Like, has, I'd seen it, and I thought I was crazy because I'd never seen it again. It has no right to be as good as it is. It, exactly. Uh, Psycho Cop. I mean, you got a little fucking Psycho. Bruce Campbell. It's no Maniac Cop. So, oh, man. You're that's wrong. what I'm thinking. No. I, we drink a lot before these, and uh, this is like our eighth take, so I'm pretty drunk. <laughs> Sci- oh, no, Psycho Cop sucked. I specific- Now, here's a movie that doesn't suck. Shocker. A.K.A. The Better House 3. Exactly. It's like Wes Craven's weird in-between movies were like... It's the best Nightmare on Elm Street movie that's not a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck you, Skinner. Uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night 3. Better watch out. Yeah, with uh, Bill Mosley. You better watch out for his weird brain jelly head thing. Uh, Sleepaway Camp 3, Teenage Wasteland. That's, I, you know, I always, I know we're taking a long time on this, but it's a movie that's like, hey, let's fuck it. Let's go right from the beginning and just start randomly You know what's it. great about that movie? They it, Because it was filmed at the exact same time yeah. as part two, they reuse props and then like Angela like beats people with a stick in part two and she uses the same stick in part three. Stay green, people. Greta ha- Thurberg agrees. Hashtag, hashtag continuity. Hashtag. <laughs> hashtag uh, woke. Ha- <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, next movie is called Society. Yeah, Brian, uh, with our buddy Brian Brimmer, Brian who's Brimmer. also on here. On, on the next entry, but I just have to say, my boy Brandon was kind enough to buy me a bumper sticker I've yet to put on my car, but I'd rather be shunting. Yeah, we got that from Central Cinema, our, our local cinema down the road, and they had that, and I'm like, oh, God, I have you to buy it. I have this. to. Uh, the next movie, also Brian Bremer, Spontaneous Combustion. Directed by the great and late Toby Hooper. Uh, Stepfather 2. All right. Decent so, movie, decent yeah, movie. It's, still has the original actor. The third one, he gets plastic surgery. <laughs> Sundown, The Vampire in Retreat. Things. And this is one of my favorite. The Toxic Avenger Part 2. The Toxic Avenger Part 3. <laughs> 89 was a good year for... And the last one, Warlock. Great underrated movie. Yeah, uh, we we actually don't know what's going on with uh, Warlock uh, actor Julian Sands. Uh, he's been missing for quite some time, presumed dead from hiking during a winter storm. And he drank the fat of an unbaptized child, and he's flied off into Valhalla. Okay, that's canon. That's that, canon. That, that we okay. Well, uh, we don't have glasses to clink, but clink, clink. clink uh, uh, we hope that uh, something positive will come out of that. But you know, more than likely, and if not, don't go hiking, people. Stay home, watch movies, yeah, listen to podcasts. Don't ever go out of your house unless it's for booze or food. Yeah, I mean, they got DoorDash for that. Oh yeah, that's true. Never mind. So out of the out of like these films, where do you think 
a Nightmare on Street 5. Top ranks. three or four. Like, it has to be somewhere in there. Because uh, there was a bunch of movies we love. And only a few that I could think, like, would hang with, you know, Halloween 5, fr- Friday 8. You know, well, let's let's check it out. Number five, Halloween five, the revenge of Michael Myers, eleven million six hundred forty two thousand two hundred fifty four dollars. Number four, Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight, Jason Takes Manhattan, fourteen million three hundred forty three thousand nine hundred seventy six dollars. Coming in at number three, A Nightmare on the Street Part Five, The Dream Trial, with $22,168,359. Number two, The Fly 2, $38,903,179. And I'm, I'm sticking to my point. You really need to, I to will, watch it. I will go. I have it actually on. I, I bought like a double thing like at Walmart. I have Fly 1 and 2 on DVD. I will watch, watch it tonight. Watch it. Watch it unencumbered by technology. I'll hit my wife, I'll (laughs) smack my children, I'll charge my phone, and I'll watch it. Pop some buttery popcorn and, you know... I did specifically yesterday, or day before yesterday, buy a box of, like, movie theater popcorn and some, like, little seasonings. Put it I'll do that. Uh, you you do you king. I do mean. You, you earned it. And, <laughs> coming in at number one, we have Pet Cemetery with fifty seven million four hundred seventy thousand one hundred thirty eight dollars. I mean, the late eighties was like we we're having a king of science and like the you know with it and all that and Stephen King's movies doing well, but late eighties was also prime king territory. Absolutely, it was a good movie. So, heading into the end of the 1980s, Freddy Krueger was quickly becoming the undisputed box office champion of the horror genre and officially took the crown with the staggering box office success of 1988's The Dream Master. So, 1989's The Dream Child would attempt to capitalize on the previous film's momentum, all the while injecting the series with some new life, literally... With Freddy becoming a father, little did we know that this was the only film, well, that maybe it should have been better served as being aborted in terms of the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Hashtag her body, her choice. So let's take a trip <laughs> back to the late 80s and figure out how New Line got into this mess. Let's go from page to screen. So looking to push the franchise into some new directions, New Line put out feelers to several writers to hear pitches. One of them came from Splatterpunk legend David J. Shaw. He had this to say about his original treatment for Part 5. Mike DeLuca, then a development guy at New Line, called me in to ask if I'd be interested in writing. I went in and I wrote. Uh, I gave them a treatment called Freddy Rules. I posited the existence of a dream reality location called the Coma Pit. It's the only place Freddy is afraid of. I was the only person in Hollywood without a script in their back pocket, so I did not get the job. Now, his description is vague, but is this a direction you would have rather, uh, would have preferred the movie to go have gone in? Okay, one of the positives of this movie is that they try something different. Kind of like with part two, Freddy's trying something different. Maybe I go to the real world. This time, he's like, I'm going to use the dreams of a baby, you know, and feed it souls, yada, yada. Um, That's a half measure. After hearing this guy's, like, full, like, Jason goes to hell out there thought, which, for all its flaws, Jason goes to hell fucking goes there. It went there, girlfriend. Uh, this one also like would have benefited more. Again, this is the fifth one. It's like when I saw Scream 6, 
Ghostface Takes Manhattan, you know, at least they fucking went there. It's not a great movie, but it's fun as hell. This one could have been had they either had a completely different idea out there or gone harder with this. Well, David didn't get the writing job initially, but he will come back into play in just a bit. The road to what would become the dream child, depending on who you ask, would start with executive producer Sarah Risher. She had this to say about the genesis of Part 5. The story of Nightmare 5 was controversial with some people. I really think I came up with the story because... I was a new mother, and I was consumed by my child, who very possibly could have been the devil. He had omen-type qualities. I remember stressing that during the whole creation of the script. However, if you ask screenwriter Leslie Boehm, the idea for Freddy to have a child came from him. He had this to say. For Nightmare 3, I had pitched them Freddy as a baby. I went in, and one of the executives was pregnant at the time. I was literally picturing picturing the claw clawing their way out, and no one liked my idea. So then I get the call for Nightmare 5, and when they came to me and said, Remember when you wanted Freddy to have a baby? Well, we like that idea now. So what if Alice is the mom? Okay, so who is... Who deserves credit for this abortion of an Neither idea? Neither one of these people get credit. You have a new mom who's like, I hate my baby and I should have gotten an abortion. I think it's the devil. Or this other motherfucker, look at that pregnant woman. I wish her baby claw its way out and kill her. They're both bad and wrong and they both deserve equal credit. What the fuck, people? Babies are, are awesome. As long as they're not yours, you can hand them back to their parents. <laughs> Leslie would turn in a draft for the dream child. But it still wasn't what New Line wanted, so screenwriter John Ship Skip, I'm sorry, uh, was brought on board to do some rewrites. The major issue is that from the get-go, nobody was on the same page about the direction of the series. John had this to say about the screenwriting difficulties. We wrote what we thought was a pretty solid first draft. They said, well, you know... You wrote a Nightmare on Elm Street movie like a Stanley, like Stanley Kubrick would do it. And then we said, yeah, cool, huh? And they said, no. <laughs> it was pretty clear that New Line had bit off more than they could chew, having such a quick turnaround from Part 4 to Part 5. Pre-production started in February of 1989, and the film was in theaters by August. With the production now underway, there was still not a finished script. Because of this, David Shaw was brought back and he had this to say. Now Nightmare 5 is shooting. Having gone through all these other writers, they brought me back in the movie I couldn't get hired to write. They brought me back into the fold for me to produce dialogue and to polish it. Now I'm going to stop you right there. That's why I love this movie. This is the greatest movie now. Because this whole movie is a giant middle finger to New Line for not taking his, oh, you want me? Okay, I got, I got you, son. I'll help you out. And, you know, it's always a really good sign that a movie's going to be top quality when it's filming without a finished script. Well, that's actually brings me to my <laughs> next question. Does knowing the impossible situation the crew were under give you more of an appreciation for how competent or, to, depending on who you ask, incompetent the movie turned out to be? Look. I'm going to give, here's my credit, and uh, here's my positives I'm going to say about this. This movie looks fucking great. I think I asked you before this, didn't our, your good buddy Mick Strong, his sister did production well, design for We'll this talk movie. about that a little later. Fucking amazing look. 
Good special effects. No matter what you say, there are really good special effects. Ninety percent of them are good. Ninety percent, but they still tried. They 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 know these are effects driven movies. Let's go out there. They tried new things. Negative. Fuck you, Stephen Hawkins. Don't hire a horror movie director who hates the sight of blood and works that it. That had to have been his script notes. The little comic book boy that can't stay in the sight of blood. Yeah, again, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, we'll talk. But yes, no. But I, if you, it if, makes me get. It does give me a greater appreciation for the hardships they went through. But I want to drive to Stephen Hawkins' house and hit him. If you think if they'd had maybe another six months of pre-production... It, it could have been the movie. That's the, my whole point that made me even matter today, thinking about that I've ever been. It could have been equal to part three. It has an interesting idea. It has some good places it could have went. And they're like, no, fuck you. Well, for better or for worse, The Dream Child would be released in theaters to mostly negative reviews. But let's figure out why. Fat Tony, if you'd be so kind to read the synopsis for Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. I'll read the synopsis before he hands it to me. Abortion should be legal. The end. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> Freddy Krueger returns to deliver a whole new breed of terror in his most fiendishly perverse fright fest yet. And Brandon copies these word for word from like, what, the back of the box or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. So he's not, we're not, this is not rants approved. <laughs> <laughs> Unable to overpower the Dream Master who vanquished him with a fucking mirror. Him in A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Freddy, Robert England haunts the innocent dreams of her unborn child and preys upon her friends with sheer horror. Will the child be saved from becoming Freddy's newest weapon? Or will the maniac again resurrect his legacy of evil? For uh, for this eye-popping installment, director Stephen Hopkins, Lost in Space, Predator 2, enlisted makeup wizard David Miller, The Terminator, original creator of Freddy's hideous visage. The result? A face not even a mother could love and a terror behind, beyond your wildest nightmares. I want to puke reading that. I take a shower. Everything that is wrong, like it looks great. I'll, I'll say that. Okay. Well, without an approved finished script in hand and with a looming release date on the calendar, New Line sought out the hungry filmmaker who could or ultimately did not deliver a visually stunning Nightmare on Elm Street film on budget and on schedule. This film is directed by Stephen Hopkins, who also directed Predator Two. Judgment Night, three episodes of Tales from the Crypt, including a personal favorite of mine, being yeah. the Abracadaver, where Bo Bridges plays a fucked up medical assistant, uh, The Ghost in the Darkness, which was a huge fucking flop, but it's a much better movie than it probably yeah. does, than it gets credit for. Lost in Space, which is a fucking awful movie. It's a horrible movie. The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, which landed him an Emmy for Outstanding Director of a Miniseries. Um, or in a movie or uh, dramatic special, as well as tons of TV, including uh, 24, Shameless, and Plain Side Traffic, and Californication. So he's done tons of things that I like, he but, was, but of the things I like the most, he may have done the worst version of. And uh, to be fair, this sounds like it was very early in his career, so if I were to see him, I'd punch him in the eye, not hard enough to break the ocular bone, just hard enough to express my displeasure because that's also the abracadaver was also one of my favorite. Like I was, I I don't do research for these shows. I leave that to Brandon's OCD brain to do, and I bounce it off. 
I was up this morning. I was getting a fire in my belly. I'm like, what the fuck else is this motherfucker to? How could he fuck this up so bad? And I'm looking at these things. Californication. Awesome. Like, he's done so. I love Predator 2. It's soaked in blood. There's so, it's not Predator 1, but no. I like it for what it's it not, is. It's, it's not even how Stella got her groove back. It, yes, exactly. To steal your words, it's better than it has any right to be. Anyway, continue. Uh, Steven was not the first or even the second choice of director for The Dream Child. Reportedly, both Stephen King and comic legend Frank Miller were offered the directing gig. Now, I can't confirm either, either of these, so take it with a grain of salt. But that being said, it is an interesting thought exercise, so let's go through it. Could Stephen King or Frank Miller have brought something better to the table than what Stephen Hopkins accomplished? Given the right amount of cocaine, Stephen King would have killed this. This was the 80s. This was, this was King time, baby. I just had a conversation about Maximum Overdrive yesterday. Um, Frank Miller, yeah, definitely, easily. Stephen King, no. Like, Stephen King is good with his shit. He'd have been so off the rails and trying for so avant garde. So you tell me that uh, this movie wouldn't have benefited from Emilio Estevez and a giant uh, Green Goblin truck? I'm saying Stephen King would have fucked up the production, so he could not have fin- brought it to the finish line. He couldn't. He could might maybe start it. The only reason he brought Maximum Overdrive to the finish line was his wealth, cocaine, dun, and it was dun, his dun, property. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yes, cocaine. Um, Frank Miller definitely. <laughs> he wouldn't let that fall out of a window. Uh, sorry, people. Okay. <laughs> cocaine is better than kids anyway. Let's be real. Uh, cocaine's a hell of a drug, according yes, to uh, Rick James, bitch. All right, with neither King or Miller coming on board, it left a golden opportunity for Hopkins to set up you know, up in the directing chair. Stephen got on the New Lions radar because of an Australian film he had directed called Dangerous Game, where a computer expert disables a department store's security system so he can rob it. But once he's inside, he's stalked by a killer. Have you ever seen Dangerous no. Game? Okay, well, I wouldn't say it's necessarily great, but it does have a strong visual style, so I can see where... I The man has a strong visual style. I can see that. I can see where, like... They he would be a director that they would want to kind of get before he became an A-list. You know what I mean? I have a note also about him. I think he might have made an interesting uh, Night of the Demon sequel with his style, aesthetic, camera shots. Not Freddy, not a slasher, not a even a supernatural slasher. Give him a little more leeway into the crazy supernatural. I'll give him credit for that. Okay, well, let, let's. There you have it. Uh, the Fat Tony uh, seal of approval for a Night of the Demons Part Four. Uh, Amelia Kincaid still alive. Linnea <laughs> Quigley. Uh, we need you to put your ass in those pink panties again mm. and stick a, a stick of. <laughs> I don't know where we're going with this, but I'm super hard. All right. Uh, Stephen had this to say about getting hired to direct the Nightmare on Street Part Five. I guess they'd been seeing a bunch of different people, but I did did. 
I can't speak. I did a big storyboard and I had a lot of ideas about, you know, the three scripts they had sent me. Stephen's background was as an artist. And the positive thing I can say about the movie is that are most likely due to his elaborate storyboards. So a lot of these things were probably well yeah. thought out. For better or for worse, because the script was never completed, Stephen most likely deserves probably a screenwriting credit for better or for worse, because the film, he just kind of made shit up as he went along. I'm going to be fair. There are certain elements you can see he probably just did to throw shit up like the, and I even, the first note in my notes is the nun scene where she, you know, wears the habit, looks down Amanda Kruger, and she's down there in the pit. That's actually a pretty effective scene, and that's probably, that sounds like something that there's a script idea for, but it's not official. Let's shoot this, and he probably figured out how to shoot it well. I'm going to give him credit. Well, he had this to say. The script wasn't really a complete script in the end. I think Mike DeLuca and I sort of just got all the different pages and put them into shape. We could just put together sequences and solve problems with storyboard ideas when we couldn't figure out what we wanted to do. Now, what we end up with is a visually interesting gothic horror movie that is joyless, bloodless, and at times incoherent. It's a Freddy film that thinks it's a, it's serious, but somehow is goofier than like anything that came before it or since. So we get, I don't know, good aspects, but there's just moments that are like, they're just bad. It's, this is why I hate this the most. It like part full, honestly, if you ask me my least favorite story wise and everything, with the exception of the Roach Motel kill, forced generic as fuck to come off of part three from. Fuck you, Rennie Harlan, but thank you, Rennie Harlan. I mean, you coming off one of the greatest slasher movie sequels ever, number two to Friday 4, uh, but, and then come up with something basically generic, bland, but it did its job and it did it well to something with like, hey, let's really go out there. Let's think of a new fucking idea. Let's go this. And then it's just a fucking garbage fire. So. No blood with a killer with knives on his fingers. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, well, how much blame for Nightmare 5 can we place on Steven's vision for a bloodless... All of it, because he specifically says he he worked that in to the movie, the comic book. I know that's him because he's gone on record in other interviews and other people that he hates the sight of blood. Don't do a fucking... So that's why Night of the Demons, you don't necessarily have to see blood. You can have a demon eat something. Go do that. Direct a fucking Conjuring spinoff or something, you fucking idiot. Don't do a slasher movie where you slash into flesh. But but at the same time, can you blame him for taking a directing job? No, I, no, he absolutely should have. He absolutely should have taken early in his career. I'm glad he got to jump on it. He's done some things I like. But but then is it is it his fault or is it the people who hired him, Bob Shea? So that's my point. Okay, then it's America's fault. It's all if you go all the way back, it, it is capitalism and America's <laughs> fault that this movie is bad. No, it's not. He, he okay. To be honestly, all joking aside, this is Anthony here, not fat or drunk Tony. He did an okay job for what he was. To bring it back to me, fuck him, man. This is a fucking slight, like... I think it's it's the same problem that The Last Jedi has. Where like, no, fuck you. Last Jedi is the best of the new three. No, no, I'm actually going to agree with oh, you. okay. Because I know people hate that movie, and there's 
elements I hate of it, but it's the only one that had a creative vision behind it. But they hired the wrong guy to write the middle and direct the middle section of their of their trilogy. So where like this or Stephen Hawkins has good ideas, they're not necessarily comparable and applicable for this, this That's particular true. It series. Is, it is absolutely true, but I just to shit on Star Wars for a second, maybe they should have had their whole trilogy planned out before starting to film and shoot them. Well, they did, but then... No, they, they didn't. They threw out his uh, the script that was, was written. And it would have been fucking amazing, and I love seeing Luke drink green milk. Dry, right Fuck out, all of you right, right Star out of, Wars people. Right out of the titty. He needs to do shots with Jar Jar Banks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just teasing. I can't. Hey, did you hear Ray's coming back? Oh, cool. Force ghost knocked up by Kylo's ghost. Okay, cool. I just I want to tease. I don't. I don't give a fuck. Star Wars <laughs> is dead to me. Um, Nightmare Five isn't all bad. In fact, there are some excellent aspects, namely yes. the gothic aesthetic. Absolutely. So you alluded to it a little earlier. Let's talk about the MC Escher. Uh, production design done by the sister of our good buddy Mick Strong. And it's done great. The only time I've seen it, one of my notes, and I'm not shitting on her, they had a little different time. The only time I've ever seen something like this done as well was Labyrinth. And Labyrinth probably does it a little bit better, but they weren't on a fucking tight-ass schedule because that movie took like five or six years. Yeah. Nightmare had to get out in a few months, but I like it has, that's why I'm so mad at this movie. It has these great things and they're just like, considering the, the budget and the optical effects necessary to, yeah. to achieve these things, it actually looks pretty good. And I well, watched, more than pretty I good. watched this movie for the first time in HD, not long ago. And I'm expecting it to like be, there be harsh yeah. matte lines and everything. And there's really not. So, on what little they had, you know, budget-wise, I mean, they really did utilize their special effects to the best advantage they could, but I think this is one of the elements that is probably the more positive things about the movie overall. I think it looks better than Part 4, overall. And I'm even including Freddy's look, and I know a lot of people don't like the look. Mm. I know, Brandon's disagreeing. I kind of like it a little bit, but it's like, it's like a, a, a coont hair away, but I, I do kind of mm-hmm. like the, there's that one effect of seeing him going down the hallway and the, the lights on, like Freddy's actually menacing where part four, I'm just like, he's like, oh, it's Freddy. It's uncle Freddy. Let's go have fun. Uh, have a jaunty, scary movie. Uh, but this one is a little more menacing. There's a lot of things that I like better than four, but and when we get to the victims, I'm totally going to shit on this movie 100% because they wanted to be four in a certain way. Anyway, I digress. No, it looks great. All right. Well, credit where credit's due. C.J. Strawn, who uh, unfortunately is no longer with us. Did a great job. Uh, a fantastic job. There was one person who didn't enjoy the M.C. Escher staircase, and that was Robert England. <laughs> he had this to say. They had me upside down. <laughs> it was the single most difficult thing I have had to do in any of the movies. Now, despite not enjoying being hung upside down on the staircase, Robert had nothing but nice things to say about director Stephen Hopkins. So this he had this to say. Stephen would be telling me some ideas and he'd start to doodle like a cartoon, like a graphic novel. It was like, well, 
This guy's great. This sentiment seems to be shared by the majority of the people who worked with him on the Dream Child, but I have the inside scoop on one particular person who was <laughs> not digging the vibe, so to speak. The lone dissident was none other than our good friend Mick Strawn. Mick worked on the awesome teaser trailer for Part 5, uh, but as soon as he found himself in a butting head situation with director Stephen Hopkins, well... He decided to go look for other employment. Um, Good job, Mick. Just so happens we had the chance to sit down with Mick at this year's Scream Queen Shockathon, and we're going to check out that audio that goes way off the rails. We were both drunk, and we also had an unintended cameo from Rob Mello, who is the killer in Happy Death He's Day. He's so fucking cool. He's yeah. one of the coolest guys ever. Rob I... Mello, instant friend. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get him on the podcast sometime, because... Uh, we had never met him before, but my God, what a what an interesting fellow he was! Yes, very very cool guy. So let's have a listen. Well, 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 look who we got here sitting next to me, my good buddy, the bad boy of production design. You know him, you love him, the illustrious. I Mixtron. I love me too. We all love me. We're, Rob Mello uh, making a cameo here in yes, the background. Rob, Rob, come here. Rob Mello, you see that it's a it's a microphone. It's a microphone. Isn't, oh wow! Isn't that cool? That is groovy. No, this is this is this is the latest thing um, since 1910. That's like otherworldly. Yeah, isn't it cool? Wow. So so th this nutball here, this this is uh, Rob Mello, my buddy, um, star of star the, of the hit and excellent film. I'm, I'm, I'm a little buzzed right now. I almost said my bloody Valentine. Happy Death Day. Happy Death Day. Yeah. I was gonna say you fucked my shit up, man. We're gonna fight. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna fucking fight. All right. I'm too. I'm too buzzed to fight. So I'll just lay down and let you kick he's, the shit he, out of me. He's I'm, actually. I'm, I'm he's actually. He's actually a really good friend of my dog. Oh, everybody loves Toby the dog. Oh, yeah, to Toby is awesome. You Toby know? the dog who but, could not appear here today. But, but yeah, <laughs> but him and Rob really get along well. Well, so what we going on got going on here today? We're recording live from Scream Queen Shockathon, and I have to say that this is a, a really cool event that's been put on at Prater's Barbecue in Manchester, Tennessee, and we're getting to sit down with our good buddy Mixtron to talk about a film that. Unfortunately, only has a bit of Mixtron in it, and that being Nightmare on Elm Street Five, <laughs> so, the Dream Child. So let's talk about. I want to talk about the good first. Let's talk about what you did on the awesome teaser trailer. Uh, on the teaser trailer, when I, I I clawed, you clawed. You were the hand. I it was the hand. That's right. That's right. That's amazing. So, in a sense, and uh, I'm making this canon whether people want it to be or not. And you, actually, he's making it up as he goes along. Oh, that's true as well. But for the sake of argument, you played Freddy Krueger. Yeah. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that amazing? I, on, on several occasions uh, on Nightmare on Street 3 and 4 and during the TV series, uh, I have donned the glove before and done things like made sparks and uh, wow. and that and and you have to remember that I designed for for uh, the very first episode of uh, Freddy's Nightmares. I designed the dental 
the, the dental, the dental di- tool. The, the dental tool glove, yes. That's, yes. A, that's an amazing piece of, of trivia. And down the line, absolutely, we're going to cover that. In fact, uh, not long ago, you told me that you hit a bunch of ducks in, in uh, the production design for Nightmare uh, oh, yeah. Elf Street series. Yeah, so for that's, the, the, that's TV pretty... series, the TV series, uh, it was a competition between us and the Grips uh, <laughs> as to who could make the most ducks uh, in a given show. And I would put up paintings with ducks. I would put up lamps that had uh, shades that were like ducks all the way around. Um, and the grips would make shadows of ducks on the walls everywhere. And we would paint them into things and um, because we were fucking bored. <laughs> I, I, I can tell. And actually, during COVID, when I was at home and unable to leave my apartment, right. you had told me this. And I'm like, well, I'm going to rewatch the entire series. And I played Watch the Duck. So it's like trying to find the duck in every episode. In the early episodes, like they are so visible, like right. they're not no, hitting, they're, they're not super at all. in the first in the first episodes. They are super visible. <laughs> it was such an obvious battle going on between us, and I think that after a while, somebody like uh, actually told production, and so we had to be a little bit more, you know. A little bit more uh, stealth about it. So there were actually people telling you not to do stuff on this on that show. Not really, but I mean, you know, they <laughs> lay off the ducks. <laughs> lay off the ducks. Yeah, this, this mean, lame duck yeah. joke has got to get out of here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lame duck joke, right? Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Five, uh, a film that I think we can all agree severely lacks uh, in in certain aspects and, yes. uh, and we, we had a conversation just a few minutes ago and you really laid it out in ways that I hadn't thought about but I want you to be able to tell the world what it is about Nightmare on Street 5 that caused you to leave it specifically in terms of its creative endeavors well the the director was a dick and Stephen, uh, being Stephen Hopkins uh, it was St- Hopkins was he uh, he had a uh, I guess he had a vision and um, as far as I was concerned, it wasn't of the Nightmare series. And uh, in fact, I was just talking to Andre Ellenson not long ago. Andre Ellenson was the guy who did the practical effects on yes. it. Yes, yeah. And Andre's good, as you know. Andre's Andre and I are like best friends. And uh, and he said that it was weird how uh, uh, Hopkins would like point to me in a meeting, and he would say. Mick, tell me how we would do, how we should do such and such and such. And then I would say how we would do it. And then he would say, that's exactly what we don't want, the kind of thinking that we don't want on this particular film. And you can only survive that so many times before you just don't want to play. You want to pull in your tools and your uh, toys and go home and play with them. So the nightmare was over, essentially. Yes, the ni- yeah, that's right. It was no- the nightmare was no longer a dream. So... Your sister ends up kind of taking the reins on that on she that did. film, and yeah. and you know, I'm not going to discredit the things that she did because there are some positive things uh, right. about the production design in that film. It has a darker feel. That's true. That's absolutely true. And I, for me, it's sort of interesting that like they they made the point that they wanted to bring part five back into that more visceral, dark kind of area, and yet it's probably the most goofy of but all the movies. He, and, and here's the problem: the problem is that Steve Hopkins was not socially he thought that he was so socially aware that he wasn't aware at all you know it was like one of those things that he says i'm going to be brand new and i'm going to do this these this new uh optical cgi and i'm going to do it you know we're going to fold everybody into pieces of paper when aha had done it like 
three months before we started, and I'm like pointing at Aha and going, hello. Now, That's, for those of you who don't know, Aha as in like Take On Me, the music video, yeah, Aha. right, right. Uh, and the problem was is the guy's uh, fast forward heavy metal thinking was um, shit. Uh, I, I mean, it was, we, it was. We've both been drinking, so please, yes. please, <laughs> please, please, endure, yeah, yes. please be bear please, with us. No, endure, goddammit, endure. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, no, it, it was. He was. Uh, he had all these like like the Escher set. He comes up with the Escher set with the Escher set, and he does it like exactly like they had just done it in Labyrinth. So um, it's like, who did it better? doesn't count so much if you don't do it first. That's true. And, I mean, and I'm not discounting it, because I do think that that's... I am, by the way. <laughs> well, you have every right to. You well, were there. I was, I, I was, you know, I was like three years old. Yeah, well... I'm not, not to make you feel too old. Wow, that's... I know, right? That got dark really quick, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's had it well. It just really got dark. <laughs> well, let's, 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 let's bring it back to a more positive light. I would like to get your ideas. Like, was there anything that you, like, had in your head of, like, what you wanted to do in 5 that you were unable to do because you left the project? Like, I had, you know what? It's, the thing is, is uh, you have to sit down, you have to be able to sit down and, and create with the director a, a, a set of rules, especially in a horror film. A horror film always works only by its rules, right? In other words, you have to sit down and you say, say and the thing is, those rules go all the way through. And the rules also have to do with how you, uh, how you do your design. Your design has to have an arc. You know, it has to go from one look to the next in order to get us into this world and these dream worlds and stuff. And if you're not you know, simpatico. If you're not like working on the same, then um, it, it just never comes together. So, it, it, in other words, my concept was that I was going to keep on doing it principally mechanically, and mechanically uh, uh, practical effects uh, was kind of like the the basis of the things that happened. You know, I mean, all the way back to the the, the original. I mean, the Nightmare on Elm Street used uh, used gravity. Or for some of their best effects. Yeah. I mean, Jim Doyle's revolving room, you know. Uh, Which you ended up working with I on Breaking 2. I, I worked with the room. The room was just handed right to us uh, on Breaking 2. We were like, you, we usually, we just went in and we took the room out. You know, we took the Nightmare on the Street room out. And we put that little garage from um, Breaking 2 in there. Which, by the way hilarious thing is we had hired this guy called Zodiac that was like a, a big graffiti painter at the time you know he's like New York New yeah. York artist and literally this guy we built an 8 by 8 by uh, an 8 by 8 by like maybe 7 foot high garage that that um, that was going to be revolving in it and he literally, we gave the guy a box of spray paints, and he went in, and he closed the door, and he stayed in there for four fucking hours. How did he not die? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the weird thing about it then is then he comes out with blazing eyes, and he says, okay, we'll take this. So we took all of those pieces of plywood that were 
you know, up around the walls and stuff. We took them out, and then he sat down on the same day he went in, and he did it again. Wow. The same thing, so that you could have the one down below and the one up in the revolving room. That's, that's pretty I don't incredible. know. I don't know if he's alive today, but um, if he is, he probably you know licks his own balls just to uh, just to feel alive, <laughs> just to feel alive. I think that. And, yeah, uh, I killed you, didn't I? <laughs> you're the you're the king of derailing a conversation <laughs> with with a bunch of other ancillary information. It's always entertaining, so that's fine. I think I think it's interesting, and I, I want to take a small de- detour from Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, I think it's interesting that you worked on a couple of canon films, I and, did. and um, they're so polar opposite of one another. You have both of them infamous. Well, I mean, uh, Runaway Train, an Academy Award uh, right, winning exactly. film, <laughs> uh, amazing film, and then you have Breaking to Electric Bootleg, which has become basically the, the punchline of, of every sequel title my, ever. My kids were having an 80s party in, in, in Hermosa Beach, and, and playing in the background is, uh, is Breaking 2. At the party, and somebody turns turns to my daughter and goes, "Wait, isn't that your dad's name there?" And she goes, "Oh God, no, you're on his." <laughs> but they were watching the movie. I mean, come on, you can't be too too embarrassed by the fact that like you, just, you were watching it. I think I think that's incredible, and I'm a huge Canon fan. And you actually told me a really funny Canon story, and I'd like you to tell it really quickly right now. The ten thousand thousand dollars. Where basically they tell you to come pick up a, a trash bag full of money anytime <laughs> you, you need more. Canon. The great the great thing that I was saying is, it, um, I I knew another production designer who did Runaway Train, and his name is Steve Marsh. And Steve Marsh, I was just recently went out to uh, do a film. That uh, that I would I would have co-production designed it with Steve Marsh, and Steve Marsh was in a restaurant with the the cat the crew of this particular film, and I walked into the restaurant and I go to sit down and they said that we were just listening we were just listening to Steve Mar- Marsh tell a story about uh, about working for Canon. Do you do you have anything to say about that? And I said, well, yeah, you know the weird thing about working for Canon is that. As soon as you hired on, they would like turn around and behind the uh, secretary's desk, there would be a row of um, paper bags and they she would reach out and she'd grab a paper bag and she'd give you the paper bag and you'd have $10,000 in cash because it's the, they, everybody hated them so badly that you had to do everything with cash, which is a lot harder than you think. Oh yeah, from your perspective... Was Canon a front to, to launder money? <laughs> absolutely. Because it, but it certainly comes across in everything I've ever heard. Um, oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm 100% sure. What's the name of their, their uh, secret service? Oh, the Mossad. Mossad, right. I, I'm, I'm 100% sure that the Mossad made sure that those bags stayed full. Well, they did a good job for a while, and, and <laughs> they made some, some bad financial choices in the late 80s. Um, another bad financial choice in the 80s was an Nightmare on Elm Street 5. <laughs> <laughs> speak about speak. Oh, nicely I, done. I, I, know, I know. Nice segue. It's almost, it's almost like I've done this it's for a almost, while. Almost. In fact, you know, it's almost like we've both done this before. I know. That's all, 
All right, welcome back, Rant Army. We'll talk about Steven's direction as we continue through the podcast, but let's move on to something more positive first, that being a familiar face. That being a very pretty one, we have Lisa Wilcox returning as Alice. You'd know her from tons of television, including General Hospital, Murder, She Wrote, and a personal favorite of mine, she was Utah of the Clan Trilesta on Star Trek The Next Generation. Fucking nerd. One episode, she gets fucking killed. (laughs) Um, In the intervening years, she's done a lot of horror movies, but oddly enough, that's not her claim to fame more recently. Fat Tony. Do you know what Lisa Wilcox has been doing these days? Me and Brandon found this independently of each other, and both of us hoped that neither one... Milf Manor. She was brought in to replace a very boring mother and son on a show predicated on mothers and sons living in the house while they're trying to fuck men their children's age. It, it, It is the harbinger of the apocalypse for the world. This is the worst idea anybody ever had in the best way. And they're like, okay, this one mom and son, the son was not hot like the other young, and the mom wasn't a slut. So they're like, who can we bring in? Lisa motherfucking Wilcox. And I don't care what her son's name is. It's Jacob in my heart. I thought you were going to say, and she's a total slut. (laughs) I mean, she does say, like, I'm as sexual now as I was in a teenager, and I got so hard. I paid money. Last night on Amazon Prime to watch the episode where she's brought in because I follow another podcast. That's how I learned about it. And they just, they don't even talk about it much because they throw it out. They only watch the first two episodes and one other person on the podcast is like, oh yeah, Lisa Wilcox, the Dream Masters brought in later. I'm like, what? So last night while my wife's asleep beside me, I'm rubbing her hip. Everything's all quiet and calm. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to waste some money to go to Amazon Prime and buy that episode. And it's amazing. So, I have to tell you, when I found this out, I I intentionally didn't tell you because I wanted to get the gotcha moment. (laughs) I wanted it to. I was hoping he's going to be easy because he's done Lisa Wilcox research on for four, my first episode. And that would be prior to her uh, Milk Manor fame. When I read about this... Um, and doing research, I was kind of let down because when I heard about it, I actually heard about this from Red Letter Media. They did a Nightmare on Elm Street couple two part video about the series and you know the you know pros and cons and what yeah. they liked and what they didn't like. But they they talked about how Lisa Wilcox was on the show Milf Manor, and when I heard this, I immediately paused the video <laughs> and I looked it up, thinking like, Oh my God, is this like a Skinamax movie? Uh, no, it's not. I got Damn so it. excited, more excited than a almost thirty nine year old man should have gotten, because I, I've had harbored negative feelings ever since this movie came out, and I found out that she was not actually naked. It was a body double. I'm like, Well, this is my chance. This is my chance that that Freddie money is is dried up and she's turned she, she's turned to do Skinamax movies, but that's not what it turned out to be. But I have to ask you this: How does it feel to know you're too old for her now? Um, she likes him young. If I if I shave, I can look. Yeah, that's true. If Brandon shaves his beard, he could dip twenty four at the oldest. Well, but thank you, thank you. It makes that's, me feel yeah. really nice. Makes me feel really nice. You baby faced bitch. Uh, <laughs> I'm just... I'll take I'll take it. You can call me a bitch all you want. <laughs> all right, the, our our movie starts off with a steamy love scene that results in Alice becoming pregnant and Whore. and 
<laughs> you just got <laughs> threw Brandon off, people. But you should throw me off. Uh, I was waiting on that. I knew he started. Freddie <laughs> Freddy is able to use the dreams of Alice's unborn child to continue killing. So. My question is, did they write themselves into a corner with the ending of part four, or is using the dreams of a fetus a creative way to revive Freddy? I like this, but I don't approve of the stand that this movie take that life begins at conception because she gets knocked up the next day they graduate and Dan dies. So they are definitely falling on the, you know, hard right conservative Christian life begins at conceptions and I don't approve of that but no like they did kind of write themselves in. actually I don't think they thought about that at all somebody remembered hey pretty as a baby let's do that because there's no who cares about a corner they'll be like oh somebody glued the mirror back together in a dream <laughs> he's brought back because a dog pisses on the graveyard they don't care I think they had a neat idea and they wanted to follow that trail I am 100% in favor of for every movie, they can just just insert the scene of the dog pissing <laughs> in the graveyard, pissing his his corpse back together. That, that I'm fine with that. Yeah, that's a Freddy movie. I'm not looking for logic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It, as many times as I've seen this movie, I don't think I've ever really put two and two together as to Freddy's motivations until I started doing research for this episode, and I came across this quote from screenwriter Leslie Bonham. We had to make up a set of rules for what was what he was doing to get himself into the real world, which may be a little muddy in the movie, but it was essentially get all four of her friends' souls and then get into the baby. So basically, and I'm going to throw out a uh, a movie that I've only partially seen, that being the Evil Dead remake, Fuck which you. where they have to have... <laughs> Five souls Something to, like to bring, that. bring the thing that crawls out of the bloody ground or whatever. So I, I'd never put this two and two together. I, I thought the idea was that Freddy was going to uh, be inside of her and it was just using the dreams to kill people. And then like he, literally the baby Jacob was going to be the new version of Freddy. And after watching it this this most recent time, I don't know that I didn't still get that. When they say it's idea. muddied in the movie, that that is speaking very lightly. No, it's a whole fucking mess. I thought he was just, like, the first time, okay, not the first time, like, the 10th or 11th time I saw this at, like, 13 or 14, I'm thinking, okay, maybe he's using the dreams to kill, feeding the souls to the baby to corrupt her child and just be like, fuck you, bitch. And, you know, maybe, you know, getting out in the real world, maybe possessing came across my mind a couple times, but it just seems like I think this was just kind of his way out. And then once Jacob was born, he could use his dreams to circumvent the dream master. It's, it's a fucking muddy nightmare of a plot that has a couple cool visuals. If this had been made more evident as to the rules that he yeah. sort of laid out there, do you think audiences would have been more respondent and favorable to the dream child? No, it's a, it's a mess overall. It, no. They could have clarified it with a couple of lines. That's not going to solve the fucking shit show that some elements of this movie are. It was controversial in 1989, but in 2023, it's really politically charged and there's only, that baby. there's only a seed of it in the dream child and that topic is abortion 
Would the dream child have been better suited on full-on exploring the abortion controversy? It's brought up, like, what, once? And she's like, no, it's me and Dan's baby. Yeah. I'd rather see you die. That's that's a selfish attitude. And um, I'm amazed she's not a Fox News pundit now. <laughs> Uh, no, like, I, I would have liked a little more in-depth conversation than have this baby. And, like, maybe she's like, well, maybe I need to do this. You know, all I'm saying is this movie would not have worked in this day and age because Dan would have definitely slipped her some Plan B and some orange juice right after. Because he's going raw. He plays in the mud. He's going to get dirty. If you can walk in the mud, you fuck in the blood. Wu-Tang. Yeah, Wu-Tang. <laughs> he's not, he's obviously going to raw dog it because he's just a, a white cisgendered male in the 80s. You know, condoms are for the gays. But nowadays, he would have been like, here's plan B along with that roofie, baby. <laughs> you fucking... <laughs> <laughs> Brandon's crying. I'm loving it. Oh man, it's it's evident that this debate is is in the movie, but not in a meaningful way. Well, this is what also I'm saying though. They also do inadvertently fall along the lines of life begins at conception because she gets fucked, she graduates, Dan dies, and you're a little bit pregnant. Unless uh, what? The, okay, I'm 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 actually wrong. This is one of the few times in my life. They could have got knocked up prior. They would have had to have got knocked up prior to the slow motion blue tinted flesh tangle that I used to jack off to as a child that starts the movie because she's further along, but it's still, they do fall basically along the lines of life begins at conception. Have you ever seen the, the series Masters of Horror? Yeah. The Showtime series? There's an episode that John Carpenter did in the second series called uh, Pro-Life. Oh. No, Cigarette Burns oh. is the first. Okay, uh, first no, series. I didn't see the second one. All right. All right. For the record, I don't think this is a great episode, but it does tackle the idea of a girl getting an abortion because she's pregnant with a demon, and her father won't allow her to to do it because he has like an evangelical background and it explores both sides of this a little more compellingly than like, you know, anything that they do in this movie. Oh, yeah. So would it, something like this have been a better way to have handled the dream child where maybe like the father is like, uh, no, I have can't... notes. I have notes on the father that are all positive. Weirdly enough. Uh, he's in the background getting a full story arc between two movies, but he—he is—he's much nicer in this movie than like 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 I one of my notes is the dad gets a full story arc from the alcoholic, checked out dad from part one to the father who's had to make you know concessions that his daughter is pregnant right out of high school and no dad wants that, but you know he's open for the possibility he misses his son. Good for you, drunk dad. <laughs> Uh, obviously, whatever negative I have to say about the Dream Child, it doesn't extend to Lisa herself. No, she's great. Um, and I literally, she's, I literally have that right here. She's great. She's better than she is in Part Four. <sighs> Mousy Lisa Wilcox, I didn't buy. So this this whole movie, she's hot. Lisa Wilcox, it's more b- believable. I find her in terms of like debate of what most Nightmare on Elm Street fans would hold her in the top three of, the, like, the final girls of uh, Kristen, uh, Nancy, and yeah. Alice. So, which of the three is the best final oh, this girl? Gonna, this is going to be the super hot. Day. Okay, Nancy, number one. Um, fucking Heather Langenkamp, forever. Always. 
Alice is part is two. She makes it through two movies completely alive. Uh, fucking Heather. Heather Langkamp. Not Heather Langkamp. The fucking character's name from three. I'm blanking. Oh, Kristen. Very, Kristen. Re- Patricia recap. Arquette. Badass. Recast. Recast. As Tuesday night with her beautiful round face I that I want to drop loads on. <laughs> I love you Tuesday night, <laughs> but you didn't last. I'll do it on Wednesday night. I don't give a fuck. And re- <laughs> Bravo, sir. Bravo. And to be really, Alice is, is the goat amongst the old canon because she survives two movies, unlike either one of the other ones. She makes it. Nancy dies, and uh, Kristen dies. I, for me, it's always going to be Alice. I, I absolutely love Lisa Wilcox, and I like that. Like you get an evolution of her character from part uh, part four to part five. She's not the same. She's there's grown. story arcs that happen, and that's another positive for this movie. It's it's not it's not a story arc in the sense of like. A three act structure. No, film, no. But you do character development. You do get to see character development from part four to part five. With everything positive I have said about Lisa, I do have one negative thing, and it's a big one, and that's her going from a redhead to blonde in part five. So eternal question: redhead part four, blonde part five. The she's aunt? more. She's more strawberry blonde in five, but more blonde than redhead. Honestly, I think in this movie she's just over. Like, okay, now I'm gonna I'm gonna come down hard. I'm not gonna equivocate. She's hotter in this one than four. But I do like the end of part four. Her whole look. Overall, I go strawberry blonde. I'm gonna I'm gonna completely disagree. With I you. understand. I I find slick down greasy hair, mousy. Part four, Alice. Well, that's a lot more attractive physically. You like women with low self esteem who let you put it in the butt. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. Like, no, she's uh, on Milf Manor. Come on, I mean, she is on Milf Manor for a good reason. She is a mom I would like to cuddle with. I'd like to marry. You I know what I would cheat. like to do, Lisa Wilcox? I'm extending dinner this, day. I'm extending this out to you right now. I'd like to make you a gilf. <laughs> Wait, are you gonna have a? I'll get your children pregnant if if it, if that's what it takes to get with you. I'll make it happen. <laughs> uh, you know that's one good thing about pop culture. It's aged with us. Like had Milf Manor like been out in like the early aughts, and they had women Lisa Wilcox age, and they'd be like, "Oh, it's zombie fuckers from the tune." Now, now they're actually there are milfs. You know, we can't see 30-year-old women like, you're a MILF. No, we're going to age it up for you, cisgendered, hetero, 40-something males. <laughs> the world is yours still. And I'm sorry for that, but I do enjoy that, that you know. Uh, listen, we're going to talk about Lisa a lot more as we go through the podcast, but we're going to move along into something that I am just ecstatic about. I know it says some, you know, mostly negative things uh, about this movie, but all the positive things I have to say generally are on the shoulders of this lady. It is a great pleasure. We were able to get the lovely Lisa to send in some audio about her transition from part four to part five. Take it away, Lisa. Hello to Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. So to answer your question, regarding how Alice evolved Alice into the dream child, dream master to dream child. And honestly, Alice developed so much. I mean, what an arc. 
that Alice had. So by the end of four, you know, she's she has her strength. She has found herself. She has found her voice. So by the time five happens, you know, she has those strengths. And she had she needed those strengths to fight for her child. Not just from Freddy Krueger, but also the choices a young woman, you know, teen pregnancies, lost her the father of her child, the love of her life. Is Danny gonna dance parents gonna adopt Jacob? Her child? Uh, abortion? So she had some decisions to make, and which Nightmare 5 definitely brings up. So what I can say is Alice had evolved and found her power. Nightmare 5 was a completely different experience as far as what Alice had in Nightmare 4. And your other question, would I reprise the role of Alice Johnson? Of course, absolutely. And what the heck happened to Alice and Jacob? I mean, did they just ride off into the sunset? I mean, it's just still so bizarre to me that there's this like empty little chapter in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. So it'd be great to have another one made to resolve the story of Alice and Jacob, but whatever, it's not happening as far as I know. Thank you so much for um, having me and um, have a great day. Have a great year. Okay, ciao. Uh, All right, welcome back, Rant Army. Obviously, everybody loves Lisa Wilcox as Alice, but I think I know who everybody came to see. That being the Springwood slasher himself, we have Robert England returning for the fifth time to play Freddy Krueger. I'm not going to waste everybody's time running down Robert's laundry list of film roles. If you want to run down, go listen to one of our previous episodes of the Nightmare on Elm Street series, available in our archive at JuicyKruger.com. Now, there were several people within New Line who believed that they had pushed the comedy too far in Part 4, so the decision was made to make The Dream Child a much more serious movie. Now, your miles may vary on if they delivered on that front or not, because there are legions of fans who claim Part 5 to be not one of, but the corniest of the bunch, but I digress. Screenwriter Scott, uh, John Skip had this to say about the change in direction. The idea was to make Freddy scary again, because at this particular point, he was definitely in danger of turning into, like, a game show host or a breakfast cereal mascot, which is, of course, what happened. So this is a two-part question. Number one, do you think a change to a darker tone was a good idea? Secondly, how is it possible for a movie to be simultaneously darker than part four and the goofiest movie of the entire series? Okay, part one uh, of that question. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not that bad an idea to swing back a little, you know, correct the the. I'm not going to say mistake. Part four had definitely has its charm, but we're also in the fifth series. You know, it's neither way. Part five. I know exactly how people think this is the corniest of the series. And I have two words to sum it up with. Fuck you, Super Freddy. I think that whole scene, in retrospect, throws everything off. Because for the most part, there's like, it's a boy with the dumbass extended arm. That always has bothered me since the very first time. I know he's malformed and ran out of the womb. For the most part, he is serious darker. We'll see, bitch. We'll see. I love that scene. Uh, I do have a question to ask you because I, I don't know the facts about this. Is this his fifth time out or did not Freddy's Nightmares come out between four and five? 
or or well, roughly around that era. It's around the same time, but that that is a good point. But I, I, I'm speaking, by this time he has a lot of Freddy experience under his belt, specifically in terms of like theatrical. Theatrical. It's his fifth time, but um, going serious, more serious, wasn't a bad idea. It was executed poorly in this because there are scenes where he's goofing around. He rips off his fucking arm after pouring bad champagne on it. Just dumb shit like that. But that looks cool in the moment. But then you're like, what? But like when it's like talk, the talk, the actual dialogue scenes that aren't just like one-offs. And even some of the kills, which it's a, not a good kill, but we'll get into it later. Like there's a darker element. I don't mind it, but either it's like honestly, Freddy's dead had it right. Make him a full blown cartoon character by part five. Let's do some fantasy booking for just a minute. Okay, you're in charge of the series. You have carte blanche. You just had your biggest grossing entry yet with part four. What do you specifically do with part five? What do I specifically do with part five? Um Okay, let me elaborate on that. Do you double down on, like, MTV Freddy, or do you try and bring it back to the roots? Or do you try to split the difference? Honestly, I'd probably make the same mistake they make in this movie and split the difference. Like, I would say, honestly, no, me, I'm But see, I don't think that their intention was to split the difference. No, they wanted it to be serious, but they inadvertently split the difference with just ridiculous aspects of his kills. It's only in the kills the only time he's goofy. And that is part of, like, Freddy's charm. But, like, every other non-kill Freddy scene is pretty, you know, fucking dark. He's trying to corrupt an unborn child's soul. You know, he's, you'll never find good luck, bitch. You'll never find her. You know what I mean? You know, the hallway scene, again, is the one highlight of this movie. The look on his face when he realizes, like, in Dream, they're trying to find Amanda Kruger's body, which was a stupid plot device. Anyway, don't get me started. <laughs> uh, oh, there's this building. There's just been a dead body here for who knows how long. Whatever. Uh, another note I took in this movie, Amanda Kruger, way hotter than part three Amanda Kruger. Good job yeah. uh, on that. Beatrice Bo- Boipel, I think is her name. This one or the other one? No, that's in this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. She, she can get it. Her, her, and Lisa can get it in those like non outfit scissor, habits. Scissor me, timbers. scissor sisters. <laughs> anyway, no, I, I would probably if I, I'd probably continue the MTV craze. To be honest, I think it's it's all in your approach to it. You, I think there is a like part three is probably the best example of this where you can have more more comedic elements, but you still keep. The situation serious? Threatening. He's more threatening in three than this. Like, even though in this movie, especially, like, I don't see how you get out of kills. So, like, he just controls the entire universe. And I have more about that when this. But in part three, he's more of a menacing figure. Yeah, I, I agree. After rewatching this movie this past week, I came to the realization about something that I had never drawn parallel between, and I'd like to get your your take on it. A Nightmare on Street Part 5, to, to a much lesser degree, but it's basically Batman Returns, where it is a sequel to a super popular movie where they gave the director who 
Uh, it's not exactly the same, but like they basically gave a the creative force entirely to the director and just said, kind of do what you want to do. Uh, there are checks and balances in Tim Burton's 89 Batman, but when he did you know, yeah, Batman Returns, yeah. it was all whatever he wanted to do. And you have a split of people who say that Batman Returns is both darker and goofier than the first movie. Right. And they're and they're both right. Yeah. And Nightmare Five is the exact same thing where it is both there there are elements of this movie that are truly, truly dark, but then it also has Super Freddy and like moments where it's like, I just don't understand the the rationale of these things. Instead of checks and balances in this one and creative control, nobody was in creative control of this movie. And it was Stephen Hopkins, to his credit, got it done, kind of pulled the reins, and that's how it does end up both goofier and darker. That No, the Batman Returns uh, analogy is right 100%, except it doesn't have Michelle Pfeiffer in a skin-tight pleather cat Given, outfit. Giving me a... A boner for I've the read first your, time. Yeah, I read your comment on Scott's post. Uh, no, uh, no joke, and I'll say this for for God, country, and everybody in between. The first time I ever drew a comparison between getting an erection and a woman in a provocative outfit was in the theater uh, with with my grandfather uh, watching Batman Returns, and I remember that that ride home being like, "Hey, Papa, <laughs> what does it mean when your dick gets hard?" <laughs> It means I don't have to disown you. Good job. So was was this which grandpa like on what side? Like crazy racist grandma side or the yeah, other side? Yeah, it'd be racist. Gra- he wasn't. He wasn't a racist himself. No, I'm saying but, he was married to racist grandma. Yeah. Good job for him. Yeah. Yeah, he he took me to all kinds of awesome movies, and Mamma wouldn't take me to that movie because uh, people in costumes was quote unquote gay. <laughs> God that's damn, every time I think I can't hear something new to shock me about the woman. That's a true story, Batman. <laughs> she told me Batman was gay, and I'm like, no, he's not. He likes it, that sweet poon. <laughs> My dick a hurt, Mamma. It's not gay. <laughs> anyway. All right. Whatever direction they took for these movies, thank God they had Robert England because he is the master of turning lemons into lemonade. And one of the cool things about Part 5 is that Robert gets to play an additional role. He had this to say, I had my most thrilling experience on part five. You were going to see Freddie's father was in the asylum and it was Robert England without makeup and my hair was all greased back all to show my bald spot. So Dream Warriors establishes Freddie's origin. Dream Master elaborates on it and it finally gets shown in the Dream Child. Does this help or hurt the character of Freddy to learn about his backstory? I mean, he's not Michael Myers. He's not a blank slate, so it it helps. And I actually, like I said, my first note, that nun scene in the asylum when she's just walking around amongst the things and you see Freddy kind of still even pushing people aside and just swaggering a little bit. It's a really effective scene. Like, it's a fucked up situation. You get it, and then the door clinks, and then... All the insanity stops, and they all look at her. That's a really good scene, and I think it's 100% effective. Well, regardless, this scene is one of the highlights of the movie, in my opinion. And evidently, shooting it was kind of a shit show, because all the extras got a little too much into their roles. Robert had this to say, I got locked in a room, and they had gotten every perform uh, performance actor where they got to do all this crazy shit, uh... 
uh, psycho snake pit, cuckoo's nest kind of thing. I got a little hinky because I think all those actors got a little, you know, it was like a mob. Yeah, I was really fighting the flow for a while with those guys because not all of them were film actors and they wouldn't hold back and it was very effective sequence and it looks like a trillion bucks. I agree. And I, and especially after watching this in high definition for the first time, and paying attention to like the little the little things these people are doing, they f- it feels like they just filled the place with m- actual mentally in and it's like mostly guys in their late thirties and forties. It's like guys who know they'll never make it acting who wanted their whole life to. So this is their one shot. They're gonna fucking go for it. I'm amazed there's no like. Teen Wolf 2 moment where somebody's in the background. That's Teen Wolf 1, I'll have you know. I thought it was Teen Wolf 2 when they pull back on the whole crowd after the box. No, no, it's Teen Wolf 1. It's Teen Wolf 1 because it's the basketball scene where the guy has his dick out. Okay. I'm I'm feeling that's wrong, but, you know, I'm going to trust you. No. I'm I'm going to trust you. No. No. Bitch, I'm going to Google this shit. <laughs> do it. Fucking do it. I'm, I'm, anyway, I'm I, I digress. I'm amazed nobody had their dick out or like had <laughs> shit in the floor for real trying to show what a great actor they are. Because this, this is a room of broken dreams and Lisa Wilcox and Robert England. That's what this is. If only they'd had uh, a an alive Gigi Allen to, to show That's the up. only thing that could have made it better. <laughs> I really hate to continue shitting on this movie. I don't. Uh, I'll keep doing it. But we need to talk about Freddy's aesthetic uh, in The Dream Child. Mm -hmm. Freddy's makeup was done by David Miller in this entry. That should be a significant thing because he did the makeup in the original film. He had this to say about the direction of his design. On Elm Street 5, the changes on Freddy were to make him a little more aged and a little more weathered. Okay. Of the original series... Where do you rank the Dream Child's makeup? Is it the worst? Is it the best? Honestly, like, for me, it's too. And I'm going to stop you. He's oh, he made the original, you know, design. The original design is intentionally kept in shadows. Most of that movie, there are very few clear shots of Freddy in the original masterpiece that is Nightmare on Elm Street. So his street cred on oh, he did the the original. That doesn't hold a lot of water for me. But I love this one. This is probably, it's three, five, four, one for me. And Freddy's Dead is so generic and just almost like they just wanted to make the makeup quick for him to get in and out. But that's exactly the their mindset with this movie too yes. is they wanted something quick because I mean Robert obviously he's sick of this shit he's sick of you know sitting in the chair for hours and they did whittle it down over the course of the movies yeah um three's the best I mean you're not gonna beat three in my in my heart I think Freddy looks the best in part two the Kevin Yeager design because I think it's the scariest version of Freddy but in terms of like the most recognizable Freddy yeah, yeah it is no. part three I mean, I or can, part I can four see they're, they're both sort of three and four are hovering three's a little slimier a little, little, little more bumpy four they smooth it out this one I do really liked it like again it's I, only that one scene the church scene like we'll see bitch you know, I, I just even though he's got the stupid long arm in that scene that always has bothered me for my whole life. I have that action figure. It's literally sitting right I know me. it is. I'm 100% aware. 
I I have to be honest with you. I I absolutely hate how Freddy looks in this movie. It looks it look. I don't think the design is bad. I think the way it is lit makes it look like a foam rubber appliance. And it's it's the exact same problem I have with it in Freddy's Dead is that it's just, it looks too fake. And there are moments where it's lit well, especially in the M.C. Escher scene and those parts where everything's kind of underlit and it has a little more depth to it. But when you see it, especially in the the scenes where uh, things are a little more... Heightened and goofy. It like the just dinner looked, scene, dinner party scene. Yes, that's it, to me the the worst. It looks. It looks like somebody has a foam rubber appliance on and not cheating the eye for movie magic perfection. Yeah. So yeah, I, I I'm not crazy about the way Freddie looks in this movie. So we'll have to agree to disagree. That's but I mean, fine. I, yeah, I I agree with you on certain aspects, but ultimately, if I had to rank it, um, it would be between this movie and. Uh, Freddy's dad of the worst makeup, but I can kind of forgive the makeup a little more in Freddy's dead because that movie, they're not even trying to make they something scary. Yeah. So, so I, I think this might be my least favorite Freddy look of the original series. Number one, worst look is the remake. I hate the way the, uh, it, on it, and that looks the most like a real burn victim. Yep. But I, I, didn't, I get, I, I didn't pay fourteen dollars to watch something. Hey, real. dude, that movie was so fucked up. I almost left. I loved it. The look was not the highlight. It was Jack Earl Haley's. I loved you in this dress. I'm like, I'm bowed out the fucking door, man. Shut up. All right, with Freddy moving into the uncharted waters of fatherhood, one might assume his supernatural slashings. Well, they might take a back seat this go-round. With that in mind, I think we need to cast judgment upon the victims of A Nightmare on Street Part 5. Before we go on, I just find it interesting that both of the last two of the major canon involve kids. I just now realize that Part 5, he's trying to feed the souls to that and Freddy's dead. It's his kid. That's true. He's a good father. He loves he, <laughs> <laughs> he loves being a father. Anyway. Shit, we should have done fucking Father's Day, Day for Father's that. Day. <laughs> anyway, I digress. All right, our victims number one, and this is a mouthful, so please excuse me. Following Dan's graduation, he and his friends gather after hours at the school pool to celebrate. However, this fun event is interrupted by a phone call from Alice, who has witnessed the resurrection of Freddy Krueger. Dan hops in his truck and attempts to rush to the side of his beloved Alice. As he speeds along, he finds himself yawning when the voice of his mother blares through the radio, scolding him for his relationship with Alice, who's dirty. Of course she is. <laughs> Freddy comes through the radio and seatbelt pins Dan to the seat. Freddy takes the wheel, drinks and drives because he's awesome, and points the truck at the oncoming driver. Just joking, don't yeah. do that. Um, nearly cool. hitting several vehicles head on. Freddy criticizes Dan's choices of champagne and says, It's a bad year. No, he just, it's even worse. It's bad year, Dan. <laughs> He pours the champagne onto his right arm, which works like acid to remove it clean from his shoulder. He then uses his arm as a safety belt as the truck's tires blow out. He sends Dan through the windshield and into the school's pool. Confused, Dan hurries outside and climbs aboard a motorcycle. Unfortunately, the motorcycle 
It isn't built for speed. It's built for murder. <laughs> Wires and cables infuse with Dan's body, and he morphs into some straight something straight up like an H.R. Geiger wet dream. Freddy quips, "Better not dream and drive." Just before he plows head on into a semi truck. What do you give this kill? Okay, this is the one I was telling you as as we took a break recording this. I give this an eight out of ten for idea. They wanted this to be as amazing as the Roach Motel kill from 4, which just goes fucking out there, and that girl never had a chance to fight back or survive this. Never, not at all. Freddy's using the environment and everything to mutate, change your body, and then kill you. You know, it starts out, you know, in the truck, and Freddy, I like, I had bad year, Dan! Like, for some reason, that always bothered me as a kid. And I'm like, is he talking about the year? I didn't realize he was talking about the champagne. Uh, and the, the, he's sticking his arm up on the wall to use as a seatbelt, which at all times Dan's trying to stop the thing. He's reaching for his gear shift, and that's not how cars work. <laughs> and then, you know, he plies and he gets on the fucking motorcycle, becomes like this badass heavy metal video for like 30 seconds. And it, there's a it's little basically more. Basically, the cover of. Uh, painkiller juice exactly and you know there's a little more in the this is like the only one that director's cut VHS there's a little more to the kill but it's a wannabe kill and here is my note why Dan's kill is kind of interesting but Dan's such a fucking blank slate and I thought that in part 4 too I wouldn't have given two shits if they'd have killed him off then he's just the generic white jock Hi, I I am a man. He's, he's uninteresting. I don't care that he dies. And when he pops up, when uh, Alice runs out, and the guy, he's just popped out of nowhere in the Freddy sweater, all bloody up, the trucker who hit him. Hey, I just want to make some babies. I hate him. As an actor, I hate it. I hate it. So it's as original imaginative the f you could really tell they put in a lot of effort it's only an eight out of ten and i'm being very fucking generous i also gave it an eight out of ten danny uh, is played by uh dan danny hassel the actor who reprising his role from part four and everything positive that they did from part four to part five for alice i think that's a missed opportunity i know that this movie suffers from not having enough kills but i think they should have Killed both Yvonne and Dan, but kept Dan later in the movie and have given him some character depth. That way, when they kill him, it means something. Yeah, I wish he'd have known he he didn't put a, put a baby in that. Yes, horror. and then you could have had you could have you could have <laughs> just trying to throw Brandon on. You could have had the the talk of like, well, should we keep it or not keep? Dan it? could have died defending her and the baby or something. He could get a heroic death. Yeah, instead of just like. A really cool looking vacuous. It's he could have gave him a late term abortion. That could have been there, there's your there's your topical moment where he like uh, sticks a vacuum cleaner up his asshole and no, sucks his guts out. I just stop this. You have to kill the jock with college football uh, prospects off immediately because had she's like, damn, I'm pregnant. His waspy upbringing <laughs> would have immediately punched her in the gut, and he'd have defeated Freddie. <laughs> He would have like immediately. Like, I'm sorry, but I don't know what happened. I just felt all the years of my lineage surge through, and I kicked you down those stairs. 
Because again, Plan B didn't exist. I, I like I like this idea, this version of the movie a lot more. <laughs> and then just credits roll. Uh, well, as I said, Dan is once again played by Dan yeah. Hassel, who had this to say about his death scene: the end of the scene, they put me inside the cab of a truck with all this makeup and uh, thing on my eye and this whole neck piece, and I was just wrecked. I have a line where I'm like, hey, Alice, want to make babies? Uh, anyways, people were pulling over, and I step out, and they're like, oh, my God. And we're like, no, 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 it's only a movie, but it looks so real, and it was pretty fun. Uh, it was like the best Halloween costume I've ever had. This effect was masterminded by special effects artist Christ- uh, R. Christopher Biggs. His resume, it reads like just like every movie I've ever loved. He worked on Ghoulies, Troll, Dream Warriors, Dream Master, Jason Lives, Deathstalker, um, Hard Rock Zombies, oddly enough, oh, Terror yeah. Vision, Critters, Silent Night, Daily Night, Part 2, From a Whisper to a Scream, just to name a few. The original version of this kill was released uh, uncut on VHS. It's never been released on DVD, and uh, you touched on it a little earlier, but... Why do you think that we've never gotten leaving uh, a DVD version of the uncut? I think they haven't bothered because it's such a shit movie, and there wouldn't be enough of a financial recoup from that. I think they should have done it through thrown in some bucks on like one of the many. Oh, you got to buy this, super fans! It's a new Blu-ray. We added some shit that you always buy. I love you, but yeah. you always buy that. They could have thrown in a few bucks to incorporate that, but I think this movie matters so little. And I've seen the kill. Like I used to own the VHS way back in the day. Like I've seen it's right it. up here. It's on the right shop. up here on the wall, <laughs> like at the in the in the lodge. But like. At the end of the day, it's not that much different. It's not like you know. Um, it is for me. <laughs> what what what's I I actually I, I own this on Laserdisc just so yeah. I can, so I can have the highest that. quality version of this movie, which admittedly is not very good, but at least I can see these kills at the highest quality that they've ever been released because a Laserdisc is better quality than a, a VHS, but it's still not as good a quality yeah. as a DVD. But I'm hoping that Screen Factory will eventually get the rights and they'll put out a new box a set. A new box set and throw that in there as a little yeah. gift to you fanboys that buy everything over and over and over. And I don't have the money because I have a family and I sound like I'm making funny, but I'm just jealous and sad. Thank you. I am. Thank you. I have to fucking feed kids. All right. Um, do you know the inspiration of this kill? Uh, H.R. Giger. Uh, well, probably to some extent, but, uh, but the idea of a man fusing with uh, parts... The comic book heavy metal? Uh. <laughs> Specifically, it came from a Japanese movie called Tetsuo the Iron Hell Man. Hell yeah. yeah! Joe it's, Bob! It's, it, it, and I've actually seen it before, Joe Bob, so I felt cool that day. It's a, it's a, an, it's a really interesting <laughs> black and white uh, body horror film. If you haven't seen it, check it out. And you'll definitely be able to see draw some parallels yes, with that scene. definitely. Do you think if the uncut version had been released during its theatrical run, that fans would have found be a little more fond of the Dream Man, Child? No. I mean, again, for me, my personal opinion, I it's still an eight out of ten kill. Like either way, I wouldn't even bump it up half a point. There is a different. There's a marked difference. There's probably what twenty, thirty more seconds in the scene. It's it's a lot more up close shots of like the wires going in the skin and well, that there's kind of none stuff. of them going into the head of the penis so i think they're cowards <laughs> i think that's where all the wires should have went and then came out of his skin from the inside yeah that's if that's, they wanted my respect that's in the x-rated cut <laughs> and um 
Yeah. But well, I remember watching Doc Mirror and reading like a like Fangoria back in the day. They showed storyboards for this and Stephen Hopkins is good at storyboarding. I, and they're like, We can't do this, it's immediate X. I liter- I literally have the issue you're talking about and yeah. I got it not long ago. So, fans understandably were unhappy about this scene being cut down by the MPAA, especially over the years in Fangoria, kind of like telling the tale. Yeah, of, this know, could have been so much cooler, kids. But, you know, nobody was more disappointed than Biggs, the uh, the gentleman who worked on it. I was devastated when I found out they were cutting it down. I had seen the uncut version and the cut version, and the cut version is so truncated. There's a snake hose that just comes out of the exhaust pipe and it stabs uh, back into his calf. It's like... Everything just uh, is about to happen, and they cut. So there were conscious attempts from the filmmakers to not cut the movie as much as it ended up being, but the MPA just kept rejecting it. Director Stephen Hopkins had this to say, We just had to keep cutting and cutting. We sent it back and forth to the MPA, I don't know how many times, probably 20 or so. It just shows you like how big of a an anti boner that the MPAA had for horror films, in particular slasher movies back in this time period. They did not want them to be, you know, explicit. We don't want horror in a horror movie. Exactly. All right. Number two. <laughs> While attending a fancy dinner with her mother and her mother's friends, Greta nods off and awakes at the Kruger Buffet. Decked out in his chef's best, Freddy locks Greta in a hellish adult-sized baby chair, quips, Bon Appetit, bitch. It's actually in the opening of our uh, yeah. our music on the podcast. Freddy forces Greta her, uh, to eat her own innards and quips, You are what you eat. So her unborn baby, through her unborn baby, Alice receives a psychic flash of Greta inside the fridge, whose cheeks have been stretched to their limits. We cut back to the dinner party of Greta gasping for air. No one attempts to help her, and she kills over and dies. What do you give this kill? Okay, this is one that is definitely. I was tired. I said I have a lot of notes. Okay, a Greta's mom is a cunt. Just total cunt. Fuck her. I love the scene where they're all post graduation. And uh, Brandon just had to break a beer bottle over his head. He was so mad at Greta's mom. But uh, like someone the- shoved a wire up my penis. <laughs> Boy, they're all hanging out and taking goofy pictures with the family. That's an actually charming scene. I didn't get to talk about it. I'm going to use this scene because then we go to Greta in her creepy ass room, filled with way too many dolls for somebody who just like porcelain dolls for somebody who just graduated high school. You are a fucking murderer. You're wrong. I don't like your face, the way they cut in on it. Then the dinner, but she does have a point. She's at a dinner party. The moms are like, yeah, everybody's cool. I'm young and hip. He's going to give you a great deal. Her friend just died horrifically. Like the day before that, like late that night. So it has been less than, we'll say 12 hours since one of her dear friends has died and her mom's like, well, why don't, why, this is why have you died? She can eat at parties. That being said, I do like the idea of the adult-sized uh, high chair hooking her arms under. I never got that she's really feeding her own entrails because the dolly cuts open. It's, well, I thought it was more of a, more of a representation. That's, it's more, it's, that's another instance of where the, got muddled. The, the version that you see in the theatrical cut and the unrated cut. And the, the unrated cut, he does start scraping up the guts. And he's I got do, a spoon in between he's his He's got claws. a spoon, and I like that. 
But what, why I'm scoring this so high is the scene where Alice, after getting the cheer from her dad, again, another good dad moment, dad arc in the background here, opens the fridge in the really cool, almost like Pee Wee Herman-esque. Oh my God. Uh, it stop. Is, uh, yeah. It is, it is straight out of Pee Wee's. It um, is, but I playoffs. love that. It is so much up my alley. A seven out of 10. Uh, I'm not joking. What do I have it on here? Uh, seven out of ten. Out well, of I think 10. we're going to be right on the. Uh, the next one's going to be the big decider because I am not nice to. I it. actually would rate this higher if it wasn't butchered by the MPA, but probably not by much. Not by much. It's, like seven and a half. You get you get a couple of really nasty shots of like scooping up out yeah. of the thing. Yeah, I do for I, I, yeah, I remember that. No. So yeah, the, this cut version, it's it's cut enough. To where you're not really losing much about it, but they, but they are, but I do feel like the unrated cut is more true to the spirit of like the nastiness of like what they're going there for. There is with one thing I, I forgot to mention about this. I kind of like about the darker tone of her, just oh, like almost mockingly comforting her in her dying moments. <laughs> but like oh, like you would a baby. That like that kind of works for me. Like on Robert England's thing, not in overall. Robert England did good. Anyway. Back to what you were saying about her mother being a cunt. I fucking hate her mother. I, I cannot look at her and not think about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. <laughs> because there's one of the Transylvanians that does the time warp. Yeah. And it's just like this like this huge, like super tall woman who's got like bright red hair and He's sunglasses. That, yeah. And every time I see Greta's mother, I'm it just like clicks in my brain. It's not the same person, but I'm no. like, that woman's from Transylvania. Well, you know, they better not be going down to Florida with that Rocky Horror Picture Show shit. Those those live plays are now illegal. As they should be. Fuck you, Ron DeSantis. <laughs> anyway. Only because I hate musicals. That's the only reason I want to. Like, they can be gay on stage all day. I just don't like musicals. I just have to say that John Lithgow was right. Dancing is wrong. And exactly. You should, and, and you should be punished. Fuck punishable, you, Kevin Bacon. Punishable by death. Yeah, fuck you, Kevin Bacon. And Tom Cruise. Fuck you, Tom Cruise. We haven't said that in yeah, a while. Yeah, fuck you, Tom Cruise. I still, and I've been I've been tempted to watch uh, Top Gun Maverick because everybody's, oh, it's so great. No, fuck you, Tom Cruise. I stay strong on this. I appreciate that. All right. Greta was played by Erica Anderson, who Twin Peaks fans will recognize from her role from the show within a show, Invitation to Love. That's the soap opera that they watch. Um, It's kind of like paralleling what's happening in Twin Peaks. It's basically like the seventh level of meta before meta was even a thing. That being said, people generally remember Erica from The Dream Child. She had this to say about her death scene. Todd Masters did my makeup, and he was fantastic. And the first day I went in for my makeup test, we did everything in three stages. Spent a lot of time with Todd just moving my mouth and my jaw just to see what was the most horrifying way to sell it. They wouldn't let me eat. They told me that I had everything through, uh, eat everything through a straw, and we had long days, and I got hungry. On the third day or something, I just said, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to eat. I don't care. They served spaghetti with tomato sauce, and all that tomato sauce was just living in the pocket of under my chin, and I could <laughs> smell it. I could smell it all day. It was gross. I haven't done heavy prosthetics ever since. So... Uh, according to Le- uh, screenwriter Leslie Boehm, the character of Greta was based on an e- anorexic girl he went to high school with that went on to become a model. 
As for her death, it was inspired by the dinner scene from Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. Love it. It's way far thin. <laughs> I, I never put two and two together, but now putting it. that, it's like, yeah, I see it. But at the same time, it's like, wow, this dude really was not giving a shit about like trying to make the movie darker. Because yeah. like, if you're drawing inspiration from, from Monty uh, Python. Yeah, come on. Come on. All right, number three. Alice and Yvonne head to Mark's house. He seemingly lives in a warehouse that doubles as an art studio. I love the idea of living in a commercial building, but all the crazy and unrealistic elements of the dream child. This is the most egregious, because what kid is going to live in a fucking warehouse? That being said, Alice and Yvonne have traveled there to commiserate that their mutual friends have passed. Alice goes off to make some coffee, only to return to find Mark sleeping. She looks over his drawings on the table and sees an unfinished drawing of the infamous Elm Street house with an animated version of Mark heading for the front door. Alice crudely draws herself into the picture in an effort to start, uh, stop him from going inside the house. But it's unsuccessful. Uh, when Alice enters the house, she discovers Mark hanging on the ledge of a gaping hole in the floor. Alice pulls him up once again, but loses him when Mark notices a bloody palm, which causes him to pass out. So now he's he's passed out in a dream, which I guess is like double dreaming. But, you know, whatever. Alice finds Mark again, and he finally saves him for now. A day or so passes in an effort to find the location of the location of the body of Freddy's mother. Alice decides to enter the dream world, and she's going to get the hell uh, card. Let me rephrase this. Alice decides to enter the dream world, and we get out of the... uh, My notes make no sense here. Sorry. Uh, That being... uh, it Mark. doesn't matter. Let me, let me, let, I'm going to stop you here in your notes. Mark becomes his comic book character. He, there's the one effective scene in this the broken doll of Greta. Oh, hell me. You son of a bitch. Yes, he, he becomes his, the Pick character, there, yeah. the Phantom Prowler. Um, not to be that outdone. sounds like a that sounds like a serial rapist, not a superhero. That's watch that dude, and he was stalking the supermodel chick. And he's using basically like uh, his dream warrior ability to become this gun-toting character with a, a questionable name. But not to be outdone, Freddy becomes Super Freddy, slashes Marks with his razor glove. The camera pulls back um, to see that now Mark is two-dimensional, and the color drains from his body and. He cuts him into confetti. What do you give this kill? Two out of ten. Two. Because there is such... Actually, this is, I think, what sparked the fire in me to hate this more. We didn't. I didn't even touch the, the surface of like the setup for this. This whole setup where he... like This is the only time in a movie for a while before somebody dies. Alice has somebody who's like, Yeah, holy shit, almost happened. This is all real, you dumb bitch, Yvonne. This is happening. Uh... And then, to go in, the sadness. The I like the black and white direction for a second. Then you get skateboarding free. Fuck you, Super Freddy. Didn't somebody actually who went on to do something play Super I don't even remember. I don't know if it's Urban Legend. I remember. I'm just so mad. Faster than a speeding maniac. Like, it is the dumbest, corniest thing. Uh, you talk about, the, this is why people remember this as the most corny, cheesy, overly comedic. Because they... Fuck it. And then, after all this, okay, I could still forget it. You have super pretty. Rip this motherfucker's limbs. I'm going to cut paper in the 
The ink's going to drain out. And then his confetti. Two out of ten, and I'm being generous for all the hard work that, uh, what was it, CJ Strong probably had to do to set that scene up. Yeah, the, the back, like the set was oh, like all, so painted, mad. all painted like black So and white. fucking mad. It's not even shot in black and white. It's filmed with everything colored black and white. Okay, what do you give it? I gave it a three, and that's, yet again, that is being generous. Very generous. This kill could have been inventive, but it's one of the most embarrassing moments in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. It's the biggest lost opportunity. This might work as a laugh. Like, if you had done it in a comical way, if the if the tone of the movie were more... Like, if you could have put this in Freddy's Dead, it's maybe. funny. Yeah. Maybe. But like that great kill Brecken Meyer has, the one of the best kills in the whole movie of Freddy. I'm just playing. I'm just trying to piss you I off. Fucking hate that. <laughs> this might work as a laugh, but as long as we're we're trying to make Freddy more visceral and you know inspire fear, it just it does not work. Mark is played by Joe Seeley, and I think that's fair to say that that what's <laughs> Known for acting is concerned. Uh, unfortunately, this is it. The, the character of Mark is dressed like he walked off the fresh Prince of Bel Air set, and I think it's one of those elements that really dates the film in Very a negative much way. So. Even though this is like '89, like this is sort of like the style of like the early '90s. All the early '90s were the worst parts of the '80s. Yeah, the end of the '80s. It's so like, yeah, it's this like '89 to '92 era. It's like '87. The '80s started to bleed, and then the bleeding is like. Yeah. Yes. You know, the bled out in the 91, your, your 90, your like neon colors of like the early 90s. I remember as a little kid in 1990 watching a video or some movie on something and somebody's like, it's the 90s. And I remember at the age of nine, I'm like, bitch, it's one year into the 90s. Why are you going to blame? It's like some dating <laughs> attitude. It's the 90s. I'm like, it's barely the fucking 90s. <laughs> Uh, anyway, it, no, it's it, a horrible kill. It's the biggest drop ball in the whole series for kills because I do like some of the setup. I do like when he finds the little broken doll. I even kind of could, okay, he got his Dream Master powers. Fuck you, Super Freddy. Fuck it all. So, uh, Joe Seeley agrees that his uh, his style in the movie in terms of like aesthetic is one of the things that dates the movies. He had this to say, I actually would have made the character darker. I wanted him to be a little bit more goth. I wanted jet black hair and like bone shirts, but I got blonde hair instead and the shirts that look like better on camera, I guess. Leopard print vest. It would. So would you have preferred? He should have been a moody art, art team. He should have. Yes. He, his, his take was a hundred percent right. Late eighties. He should have been the moody, dark arty kid. I, I think from a, an aesthetic point, it, it, Definitely would have fit more into what they were going for the movie, but maybe they wanted a juxtaposition. I'm just trying to think in terms I of like just, the. Uh, fuck all them. Fuck them for all of this. This is the one of the things that makes me the maddest about this movie. From a story standpoint, it might be harder to make your audience believe that this visually preppy group of teenagers would have had like a random goth friend, but personally, I think it could have given him. His like his budding romance with Greta a little more bite. He could have been like the sensitive emo longing for the girl who represents everything he isn't, and she could have been the pretty girl who's like doesn't really know how pretty she is, but is like oblivious to how he feels, but is still like nice to him. So, what do you think about this like budding romance? They could have been like um, 
Oh, fuck. I just had their names. Uh, fuck it. The, the, the pretty girl, the princess, and the bad boy in Breakfast Club hooking up. You know, she's the princess. She's the model. Her mom's trying to graze her, and he's the dark brooding kid. Uh, I John, think it would have been better. John Bender and... Um, What's it? Molly Ringwald. Yeah, I can't think of what her character's name is. I don't care about her name. Molly Ringwald and Judd Hirsch. It's not, and that, Judd, not Hirsch. Judd Hirsch. Fucking... I would pay to see that movie. <laughs> now, 80-year-old Judd Hirsch just letting <laughs> lay in fucking pipe. <laughs> Read, read from the Torah, whore. Joe Nelson. What the fuck? Bender's character. Anyway, I digress. I think that would have been more interesting. His whole little weird... I don't know if they're like trying to queer code him or something. Like The aesthetic's not cool for a cool guy, a goth, or anything... I, do you think it like benefits the film in any way to to give them like this like this budding r- romance? I actually do. I like the scene where he finds the hell, like the, yeah, the, the little broken the broken doll. doll thing. I think that's effective. I think that adds to the dark. I think that's cool as shit. I'm not. I'm not disagreeing. But they handled everything else wrong. I was going to say I, I don't disagree with you on that, but I, I think it is somewhat of a substitution for like giving him an actual character. Yeah, no, it definitely is. Romance, it, romantic it, hookups are always like shorthand for when, we don't know what to do. When you look at like the Nightmare series, the thing that like really stands them out, aside from like having fantastical kills, is that they they in relative slasher terms, tried to make their characters a little more three-dimensional and give you a reason to care about them. And I think they do that here, but it's I think this might be my least favorite yeah, no, I, group I of agree. friends of the entire Oh, it totally series. is. Except Yvonne. Yvonne's a ride-or-die bitch. All right, we'll talk about her in a little bit. Yeah, we will. This kills <laughs> is, so is one of the only times in the series that Robert England would not be playing Freddy. So let's talk about Michael Bailey Smith, who plays Super Freddy. He also played The Thing in the unreleased Roger Corman-produced Fantastic Four film from 1994, which our buddy Mick Strom worked on. Uh, Pretty well known as the creepy character Creepy in Men in Black 2. More recently, you probably know him as Pluto in uh, The Hills Have Eyes remake. Oh, okay. he, he, He eventually got to be in a good horror movie. Yeah. Uh, even though it's relatively small role, it's significant. It's significant for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first being that Super Freddy was Michael's first on-screen credit. Secondly, and more interestingly, they nearly killed him on the set because of a malfunction uh, and an effect. Michael had this to say about his brush with danger: "The lightning bolt on my shirt wasn't supposed to be there, but one of the squibs went off, and my shirt caught on fire." For me, I thought this was normal. Uh, I thought it was kind of crazy to think I had just to do this for a, a couple of lines. So he's brushing this off, but he's even kind of making light of it. But this is actually a really frightening thought of how dangerous these kinds of effects can be. He's lucky he didn't actually end up getting burned. But, you know, fast forward a few years and Brandon Lee would die from wounds he sustained from filming on The Crow from a very similar situation where well, that was a squid mishap versus well, a, something in the barrel. I realize, okay. I realize that, but my point being is that like, it's, it's so dangerous. Even when oh, yeah. security precautions are Thank taken, God Alec Baldwin wasn't on set. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. Alec Baldwin. Although, although Alec Baldwin, if you can travel back in time and, and kill super Freddy, <laughs> kill super- all is forgiven. <laughs> 
Even I hope that I hope that I hope that when you go to when you go to in front of the judge, I hope that's what he sentences you. You yes, go, John Claude Van Damme's going to come back in a time vehicle, time cop, time cop it up, and you can kill Super Freddy. And we'll even forgive you for your horrible phone call to your daughter calling her a pig. That's just oh, me. Yeah. Uh, anyway. That's terrible. So, I, I don't want to get political. I, personally, I'm not anti-gun. I I'm I do think that there needs to be checks and balances and things. Yeah. But, you know, this legal process, you know, is just crazy. But human beings risking their life for silly horror movies, it, it does seem kind of needless. Yeah. Are we nearing the end of this kind of practice of movies because of like CGI or do these tragedies kind of like offer the opportunity to, to implement new safety protocols? Like what, what, where, what direction should we be going in? We should be going in a safer way. There's no reason why any of this can't be done practically. If you follow safety rules, the crow, like have fucking hiring bullshit amateurs, Alec Baldwin, not paying attention to his firearm person, the squib guy here, you know, maybe just, you know, it's a long day. You hate this guy. You know this movie sucks. You're trying to correct the timeline. So you try to kill him with a defective squib, and it doesn't work. But, no, I honestly, I just think uh, safety conscious. And it, there because there's, again, no reason. I just saw John Wick 4 with my aunt. There is CGI enhancement. There. There's a lot of cool practical effects and nobody got shot and died from those movies a lot of times because they're done by pros in modern movies like they will take CGI and they'll like they'll enhance like the muzzle flashes and stuff have you seen the fourth one yet I have not yet but I've heard the dragon fire scene with the shotgun is the best directed action scene of all time I don't know about that of all time you'll know it goes into an overhead warner all-time best directed one specific action scene. I'm not saying best action movie. It's great. No, no. Well, well, well. Anyway, we'll, go we'll see table, it. We'll table that discussion. All right. Michael rapped on his Super Freddy scenes, and he was ready to leave when the producers presented him with another role in the film, that being Danny Hassel's body double during the film's opening sex scene. He had this to say, after we finished... I finished the scene. So I wasn't even looking at Dan when I was jacking off as a kid. I was looking at Super Freddy. You were looking at Super Freddy. And body double Lisa Wilcox. God, my life is a lie. I finished the Freddy Krueger stuff. The next thing you know, I was laying in bed with this hot chick. You see those two bodies at the beginning where the credits are rolling and they're making love. That's me. And honestly, I'm surprised because I guess with all the padding and the squibs and stuff, I thought he'd be a fat guy. The, the, those are some ripped bodies. No, dude, he is, he's fucking jacked. Good for him. He's a good, good... I thought he got fit to be Pluto by the time, like, Alexander Ajal did it. Good for him. No, he's... Hey, I, I, I'm not specifically, because I know when I'm looking at the dude most of the time, but I've come while watching him. <laughs> I'm glad you that's, know this now, that, Super Freddy. I had to watch your bullshit. I'm, you have to know that, like, 12-year-old Anthony's, like, jacking little squirts off in the house quietly, watching the opening of this movie, waiting on Lisa to get in the shower. I'm friends with him on Facebook. I'll shoot him a message. Like, hey, guess what? Isolate that audio and just send it to him. <laughs> all right, number four. Alice and Yvonne set a plan in motion to end Freddy once and for all. Yvonne heads to the psych ward to free Amanda Kruger's body as Alice walks through the psych ward halls, albeit in the dream world. Freddy chases Alice through the halls of the psych ward, but she reta- retaliates by ramming him with an oversized demonic baby carriage. Uh, this impact knocks Freddy down a flight of stairs and into the pit where he was conceived. The uh, the hundred or so maniacs rip Freddy limb from
from Lim, and his appendages turn into spiders and crawl away. The film then goes full MC Escher with this wild labyrinth that sprawls in all directions that breaks all the laws of physics and leads to a Scooby-Doo style chase scene. Alice and her unborn child son reunite when he, when drops the knowledge bomb that Freddy is inside her as I would love to be myself. Yes, good job, Freddy. Alice and Freddy physically split from each other. And we didn't talk about this, but this, oh, this effect... Amazing this, effect. This effect is one of the better ones in the movie. And a good old-fashioned 1980s practical special effects smorgasbord. At this point, Yvonne has managed to find the body of Amanda Kruger and free her spirit. With her spirit being freed, Amanda Kruger returns to give her baby boy the long overdue spanking he deserves. She confronts Alice's unborn child and compels him to rebel against Freddy, so he shoots... Yeah. Oh Lord! Super <laughs> super long tongue through the torso of Freddy, the head of Freddy's victims' tentacles. The they, soul balloon. They crawl crawl out of him and drag him until the the baby version of Freddy is pulled from the adult Freddy's body. Amanda picks up her fugly Freddy baby, and a flash of light thrusts him back inside her womb. As Amanda leaves the room, Freddy's arm busts through her abdomen. The door closes and locks them both away in the dream asylum I guess and, and also sequel bait yeah <sighs> what do you give Freddy's kill I'm ranking this way too high but I'll tell you why it's not higher overall for the whole setup you read it's an 8 out of 10 it's not a 9 out of 10 because the motherfucking soul balloons and specifically the Dan motorcycle skull rock and roll balloon thing and the comic book fucking mark Kid, like it's I it took me completely out of it because you have fucking Lisa and Freddy or Alice and Freddy separating in a really cool shot. The MC Escher, even the little kid in the makeup, like hey Freddy, real bad acting. Love that kid. He's been to other stuff this time. Show me how it is. It's like now I have the is Cartman. He, is he Cartman? It's the precursor. To, like Trey Parker got the voice for hey, show me what it is, and he holds the hand. Like it's all bad. But there's a lot of really creative, really good-looking shit in that scene. That's why it's as high as eight. But the soul balloons going into the mom, uh, nine out of ten. Or eight out of ten, and that's why it's not nine. And I'm probably way how You'd be like four or something. I gave it a six out of ten. The special effects are great for the most part. Yeah. But this process of events, it's just, it's almost, <laughs> it's so erratic. It's the most ridiculous Freddy ending of all of them, and only one of the Freddy endings has ever made sense. That I will agree with you on that. Yeah, part so three, it, Bury Him in Hollywood. That's a good horror movie. You don't, you don't need to necessarily. They, they don't necessarily have to make sense. Uh, Look and, at a fucking mirror. Hey, Freddy, there are no mirrors in any of your dreams, yet we're in a dream, and here's a mirror. At the very least, they... they <sighs> That's kinda, the one that pisses me off the most, though. It and I should, love that movie. It should, but at the very least, they kind of set that up through the course of the movie the made th- up thematically. Yeah, this one's just like, hey, let's, do, let's drop... Let's be a cool kid on shrooms for the first time and think of things. I just don't understand, like, in the process of, like... <clears throat> When you're thinking about how to defeat Freddy, like, why would you think this is going to be successful? Because it's cool special effects. Like, again, like we both said, the splitting, he's in you, 
That's a cool thing. That's a cool art. That's a whole article Fangoria can do. I'm, I'm not. That's still. I'm, I'm not saying that. But that's why they their ideas was they had they wanted they probably thought of cool special effects things to do that we can do on budget, and then let's write the scene around that, I'm, not the other way around. I'm not saying that you're wrong or their mode of thinking isn't right. I'm speaking from the perspective of the people in the movie. Why would they think when? What we did in part four didn't work. Why would we think this works? Because we end the movie basically. Teenagers are dumb. Okay. That's why Alice is a t- Alice and Yvonne are teenagers. They think they know it all. They didn't know it all before. Now they know it all. Now teenagers are dumb. She takes Jacob. She moves away and goes on several decades later to Milk Manor with her son. Who, no matter what you tell me, even that actual Jacob. Would probably be my age. Exactly. Her half-young son, his name's still Jacob in my heart. I hope for sweeps that they, they save the grand finale of, of MILFs. Dress Manor. her son up like Freddy to seduce one of the other MILFs. Or her. I mean, that's happened. We, we, we're not supposed to say. That's why this show is the harbinger <laughs> of the apocalypse. Oh. They've not fucked, but she's seen his dick and she's he's seen her tits, at least. Yeah. She walks her and asks, tits out. <laughs> That's horrible. Anyway, I digress. Tits out for Harambe. This movie, let me give some final thoughts before you start wrapping it up. Well, no, oh, we, we, okay. still got, we still got a little ways to go. Okay. So, Amanda Kruger is played by Beatrice Boepel. I hope I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. Beppity Boepel. Uh, she recently penned a Freddy Krueger prequel novel called The Kruger Curse. So, if you're interested in checking that out, you can hop over to her website, BeatriceBeopel.com. Let me spell that out. B-E-A-T-R-I-C-E-B-O-E-P-P-L-E dot C-O-M. But is it as good as Razor's Edge, the Nightmare on Elm Street prequel by friend of the pod, Blake Best? Uh, I, I have read <laughs> Razor's Edge. I've, I really want a copy. I need to find, like, I heard there's an audiobook now. I might just buy it. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely worth it. I, I if Especially if you kind of like the direction of like what they show you in Freddy's Dead. There's kind of a tie-in with 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 that. Just elaborate. I'm just wanting to give him a quick shout out. I'm sure that good. Hey, she's hot. She can get it. None. Amanda Kruger from Part Five could get it. All right, Beatrice, if you're Beatrice, you're out there, hi, um, big fan. I'm in my forties. I'm not some. I'm all good. I'm a, I'm a mature lover. I know how to give you give you the big O. <laughs> All right. The Freddy films traditionally have always had lower body counts, and especially considering the other slasher contemporaries. But being that, the Dream Child only boasts three real kills, Freddy not included. This rings especially true for this entry, so let's check out what survivors we have with our additional cast. First up, we have Kelly Jo Minter as Yvonne. You probably know her from summer school. She was in Mask, the uh, depressing Rocky Dennis one, not the wacky Jim Carrey movie. Uh, Popcorn, uh, love that movie. Uh, the People Under the Stairs, Hell we've done yeah. both those movies on the podcast. And more importantly, she was in The Lost Boys, which starred Corey Haim, who was in Silver Bullet, with Gary Busey, who was in Lost Highway, which was directed by David Lynch, who also directed the third season of Twin Peaks, where Ernie Hudson had a reoccurring role. He <laughs> was in Ghostbusters. You just got busted. Oh, he did it. I'm sure there had to be an easier way. There, there, e- there definitely Easier. Were. That's the road less travel. Yvonne, the, what's her name? Uh, Kelly Jo Mentor. Kelly can just, oh, I've, as I said, and people under the stairs, her voice, her look. I love her. 
I just, I, I, it's, it's romantic. I'll leave my wife for her. Uh, <laughs> or, you know, my wife's fine. Maybe we can do a thruple thing. No, seriously, though. I like, I've always liked her. She's always stood up. Popcorn, she stands out. Like, fucking people under the stairs. It's her voice. It's that voice, man. She's got, she's not like a, it's like a, that gravelly, like, you know, tomboyish and dry. Like, it's, it's higher pitch, but it's still gravelly, if that makes sense. Maybe I'm a, you know, yeah, she can get it. I'll be her I, fool. Like, I, no, that's her brother. Ooh. <laughs> but <it's, laughs> I love Kelly. She's always great in her roles. But the big question, spe- question specifically for the Dream Child is their justification for her character character surviving, or should they have bumped up the kill count? <sighs> they should have. Okay, if they were going to kill her, they would have had to add somebody else because there's never a lone survivor in the Nightmare movies, with the exception of the first one. The first one, Nancy's the only survivor. Every other one of them's had somebody else live. Maybe you could debate part two because it is like Mark Patton and Chick, and but Chick's really the only he was the kid. Anyway, I digress. They would have. I think they needed a bigger friend group. But no, I love Yvonne. She's ride or die. She should be looking good in that like swimsuit. She's swimming, uh, like diving ripe, like a ripe banana. I just want to throw. Bounce quarters off that that ass. Anyway, I digress. No, like I like her. I like that she lives. It wouldn't have minded if she died had somebody else been there to also not just be Alice. You can't just have Alice be the only survivor. Fair enough. But in terms of the like, simply what characters we do have, I I think that she should have died. They set up for a great kill. They, like they when did. he does, and he pops out of the fucking wall. That's another great moment. That I think the look effects, like when she wakes up in that tub and he just pops out of the fucking water and attacks her. That's a good dark moment. These are positives I have for the movie. Not just her in bikini, you know. Like or it or bathing suit. Like it or not, Yvonne is one of the few characters to survive the series. Uh, she got the fuck out of Elm Street after that. She's not dumb. Good for her. Because I mean, why would why would you stay in that town? Dude, like, get the okay, fuck out! This a, happens. I am out. You know, she moved to Vatican City to live as close <laughs> to the Pope as possible. Um, the fact that Kelly Joe Minter didn't expect to survive is kind of interesting. She had this to say: "I think I was surprised <laughs> that the character lived. Freddie did not kill the black girl. I know he did in another series, but he didn't get me. So let's get in the weeds for a second because there's a trope that people attribute to slasher movies that I would argue is almost entirely incorrect, and I don't believe we've touched on this on the podcast before." So there's this commonly held belief that the black character in slasher movies are always the first to die. I hear people regularly state this fact, but it's a position that I largely can test because it's, I, I don't know that it's true. Man, man, have more. They're never the first to die. Hardly ever. I mean, I can give you one example, right? Fucking enchiladas. He's like in the middle of the fucking movie. I think he's Cuban anyway. That doesn't matter. He's Dominican. Dominican. Still, yes. Either way, he's plain black. Like, the, but but on the same note, it is very rare for a black person to survive. I can think of Night of the Demons. I was literally going to. That's say that. like the only thing I could think of from the eighties and Nightmare on Elm Street Part Five. There you go. So yeah, I I the I think you've summed up the argument <clears throat> correctly. Is that you know the black characters usually do die. 
but they but they but they're not the first. No, because stupid ass piece of shit. You know, directors back in the day knew they didn't care if a minority died, but they wouldn't want to be called racist by killing them first. So they're just body count filler in a bad way. Like I really want to see oh, was that movie blacked Friday Thirteenth Part Two. Not only, not only do they survive, they go out and drink. And you yeah, ne- you but never, they're out of. They're never in they're, mortal peril. They're also not a character. They're, they're li- not a character. They're literally a person just in the background. Yeah, but I, I thought that was interesting it, that we could like dispel this. Uh, we like, could halfway dispel because well, they no, are going to die for the most part. It it's it is a trope, but it is a incorrectly attributed yes. trope. Yes, okay. And, well, actually, we're going to be those guys. Well, actually, they don't usually Trust die me, first. I, I, I've seen enough slasher movies. That this We've is seen one, them all. This is one of those things that like genuinely pisses me off when I hear people say, it's like, no, you're wrong. All right. Regardless of anyone's position, the character of Yvonne survives, but she does have a memorable showdown with Freddy at the pool. She had this to say about her scene. The diving board scene was complicated because I had food poisoning. I was so sick, I thought I was going to, you know... Show, but the show must go on. I had never done anything with special effects before because it's one thing to see it and you're on set and then it comes to life and you're not seeing it in the film. So, food poisoning aside, this scene was just complicated across the board. Stephen Hopkins had this to say. That was maybe one of the more complicated ones because everything about it was stop motion animation. We did a lot of stop motion animation in the film. Now you mentioned earlier, yeah, uh, in the, the peewee fridge, the peewee fridge, uh, the board, uh, the board had to turn into claws, and it was this difficult one for Kelly to act because she had nothing to work with. So, first question, you've kind of touched on this, but the diving board scene, like, did, would this have been improved? It had probably been the only ten out of ten kill had it like kept going. To a logical, like, Freddy killing her. Well, I don't know. She dives in, she wakes up, and then the play would have been 7 out of 10, 7 8. I love the scene. I think it's really imaginative. I do. This is, one, this is why I'm so mad at this movie. It has these nuggets of gold inside these big con- turds you got to dig through. They're like corn nuggets in a big shit sandwich. I do. I, I think that this is the highlight of the movie, with the exception of, like, the... Uh, M.C. Asher. Yeah. Now, can you see set. why I say Night at the Demons? Put him in that mansion, give him some demons to have fun with. Good job, Stephen Hopkins. As long as he'd be willing to murder people and yeah. there'd be a little bit of blood. And no fi- fucking Predator 2, man. Plenty of blood in that I don't think movie. he had any pull to get his vision off on that movie. Well, I'm still, he directed it. That's true. He, like, pu- he's probably puking in the That's mouth. true, but like there was nobody like... Uh, we what? don't give a shit if you don't like... They, <laughs> what they did is they had the secretary from the the, product, the producer's office come pull her tampon out and rub it in his face, and they smacked him and put a cigar out in his hand and said, now direct <laughs> some mooky Italian guy. That happened. That's, that happened. That's canon. That, I read that's that. not canon. That's fact. I read that in Deuteronomy 323. <laughs> I read it in Esquire. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If they if they killed her in this movie, her being Yvonne, how should they have added the diving board into it? Like, specifically, should it have just been, like, impaled her with the claws or maybe... Oh, driven her off into something and then have the real Yvonne, Yvonne like, dive and, like, snap her neck on the side of the pool or something... Like, I don't think the claw should have got her because it was leading her into an inescapable situation of having to dive off. And in the in the movie, it's like, ooh, it's a dry pool. And then she smashes through and lands it 
pretty just could have killed her there somehow, and then you could have had an interesting the, correlation in the real world on how it would have happened. Dream, the dream logic, it like kind of changes from movie to movie yeah. because you have instant inst- instances where like what is happening in the movie in the earlier films is sort of paralleled in like how they die in the real world, and then you have situations where uh, just. <laughs> You know, like they they find them dead, yeah. but like it's not really representative of like ha- what happened. You can happened go from movie. what's the bitch who's flying around getting cut up in the first one, which is exactly what's happening in the dream. Tina, Tina is getting her fucking ass handed to her hardcore style to Greta choking to death after being in the dream, fed her fucking insides. In real life, she chokes. There's no lie. Again, I'm going to correct this canon. This is Freddy trying to fuck around and find out, see what's happening, and see how best he can do. Get his jollies murdering teenagers, as one does, versus how he can get away with it in the real world. And Nightmare on Elm Street 1, that was his first real go-round. That was the first time playing through, so that's why she's just getting fucked up. Sexy. It all makes sense. <laughs> Man, she could get it back in the Anyway. Oh, man. All right. So, we also have Whit Hertford as Jacob, the titular dream child. You've probably seen him in Poltergeist 2, The Addams Family. Be forever remembered as the kid that Dr. Alan Grant is a total dick to at the beginning of Jurassic Park. Kids are normally not popular on film sets. There's that old showbiz saying, never work with kids or animals. And I would imagine that rings mostly true. But from most accounts, Wit was a pro. And he was well-liked by everybody on set, especially Robert England, who had this to say, the kid is terrific. He's just wonderful. I have a note on him. And this is not against him because this is definitely makeup lighting because I've seen him in other things. But in this movie... He's like the human personification of Droopy Dog, that little cartoon back in the day. I know exactly what you say. He has really heavy like bags under his eyes. It's Droopy. I had to Google his name. He's usually on the Woody Woodpecker thing. He's got the little Rashad. I don't know who you're talking about, Droopy Dog. Droopy Dog, yeah. I'm just saying that like Whit Hertford, the person, he has like really... He's got those big soulful eyes. He's supposed to be... Yeah, so I'm not making... I wanted to be clear. I'm not making fun of a little kid in this movie. He's an adult now. He can take it. Hey, I'll fight him in the parking lot because we're about the same age. I was nine when this came out. He's probably like, what, eight or nine? Uh, six Whit, or seven? Whit was just 11 when he started He's filming. older than me. I'll beat his old ass up. <laughs> well, he was 11 when he started filming. However, with a lot of people, what they don't know is that he was dealing with the death of his father at the Jesus time. Jesus Christ, I feel so bad. He had this to say about working during a hard time. My dad passed away in real life. He was my hero and I loved him and it was really great to get to work. You know, kind of forget about it and in a real state of imagination, which was what we did on set. Finding out this uh, especially heartbreaking um, scenario, when you consider like how much choose to focus a lot of their hatred on the dream child directly onto him and his I'm so bad I'm going to put a cigarette on myself. Specifically. So another two-part question. Um, what do you think about his performance? And secondly, does he deserve the hate that he's been given okay, online? Absolutely not. He doesn't. I'm answering the second part first. He's a, he's a kid in a, in a slash movie set. He doesn't deserve the hate. Second, the first part. The scenes where he like meets Alice in the hospital and like when she goes into the nightmare, he says you don't he's fine there. My only time where his acting choices and if I'd stop him, it's that he's in makeup, they have a limited amount of time. 
hey, come on, baby. Hey, guy. No, kitty, it's a bad kid. Like, no, like that whole little sequence. But that's the only thing. And that's not his fault. He's under makeup. They he have time constraints. It's he did not write the script. He didn't do it. His, like, his dialogue is really bad. Yes, but the the ones where he's just a little kid are like, why don't you like me? I like those. Those are good moments. Is he the kid in um, New Nightmare? No, that kid fucking nailed it. Miko Hughes. Miko Hughes. Like, he is not a good actor as boys have a penis and girls have a vagina at Miko Hughes, but he's fine, except in the one scene where he's. I think the one point where, out. where the Jacob character really grates on me is where, yet again, he's wearing the prosthetic. And he's like, I want to be bad. I want to, yeah, that whole, the whole vibe of that is just, I get why people say it's also the corniest. Oh, I think we've covered the dream child as comprehensively as possible. So it's time that we render a deciding verdict and lay out whatever else we've got to say about the movie. Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, The Dream Child. What's your final verdict? Biggest missed opportunity of the franchise. It really it had great ideas, great look, great cast. Just, it's like... One step forward, two steps back, the whole way. That's my final. My final thought is you need to see it. There are elements. I work. I my my hatred is freshly renewed, so I might be. I'm afraid I'm putting too bad of a paw on it. But fuck that. What I say goes. Um, it's it's real shit, but it's like it's it's it is in its own way entertaining shit. Um, before I watched this movie. I had not watched it un- until, like, the last time that you and I watched it, was it like together. like three years ago, three or it was, four. It was, like, around July 4th, and, you know, yep. we drank, and we laughed at it, and, it, and we had fun, but even then, it's like, well, this is not a great movie. No, yeah. I do have nostalgia for this movie, and I think that that's always going to probably elevate it higher than I probably should hold it in the esteem. Because, I mean, it's still a Freddy movie. Yeah, it's still an 80s horror movie, too. So, I mean, if you you watch this in, like, a movie marathon, provided it's, like, at the tail end, you know... Yeah, when you're good and drunk. Yeah, you'll probably enjoy it. But this is not a movie that I would put on just by itself for enjoyment if I'm watching something to be singularly entertained. I will watch the first episode of uh, uh, Freddy's Nightmares for just a random Freddy thing before I put this on. And there's a whole lot of things to say about that. Oh, we're going to do we that eventually. Them. I actually want to uh, oh, get us together with Mick and do a watch along. I think that'd be that'd so be much great. fun. Mick, you're being called upon. <laughs> Turn on the Mick signal. <laughs> We should build one. It's just a, <laughs> it's just a, an, a, 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 a silhouette of a, a beer bottle. All right, uh, time flies, man. Uh, this uh, this this year, uh, admittedly, we've we've had some uh, some false starts, and hopefully, this is the us getting kind of back on schedule. And um, I think uh, this episode uh, is a is a good to- yes. topical point. But we'll be talking uh, about some more entertaining stuff, a little better films in the future. But I think it's important that we kind of can't focus, wait to do Sallow. Till we do, till we, <laughs> till we, you need to focus on good and bad sometimes. So it's nice to kind of switch things up. 
But it's times like this that make me very glad that I'm not a parent. I know you are, and you dearly love your children, but... Uh, Sometimes. I, I look her Every time I come to your house, I'm so jealous. And I'm like, man. But I do. But when I'm old and dying, I'll have somebody to maybe help take care of you. You're just going to die alone with a beer in your hand. As God intended. Yeah. Well, you know what? Oh, at, I'm at, saying that's not as a bad thing. At, at the very least, uh, I don't have anything positive okay, to say. Yeah. It's sad. I'm gonna, we're all sad. Uh, we're old. We're old. All right. Um, I think that's going to wrap us up for this month, uh, Ran Army. But we'll be back real soon with another in-depth retrospective. Till then, the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast can be found on a multitude of platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So go give us a sub if you aren't already. You can follow us on social media at Rants Black Lodge. And don't forget to stop by our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. And for the love of Cthulhu, go buy a t-shirt, a mug, or a sticker from our web store at RantArmy.com. Be sure to check us out next month in Knoxville at Bride of Frankicon, June 9th and 10th. You got damn right. We'll be there uh, doing some fun stuff with Mick, and we're going to be doing a VIP uh, screening of Frankenhooker with um, Patty Mullen. And if you're cool, we'll go to the bar and drink, you know, commit crimes afterwards. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we're going to be there regardless, so just, just... Find us and we'll uh, we'll gladly uh, regale you with a bunch of nonsense. I'll Ho- tell you shit nobody knows but about Brandon, but me. Hopefully Mick will be there, and uh, <laughs> and and if you can't have fun with us drinking, you'll definitely have fun with him. So we're looking forward to it. It's going to be a fun year. We look forward to doing some more awesome stuff. All right, for Fat Tony, this is Brandon A. Lane signing off. Till next time, Ran Army, keep marching.